So I hope everybody's doing well out there. We are back. It's Meaning Making 101. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And this is a special series during which we've been covering uh, John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. We are now up to episode 38 on agape and cognitive science. Well, let's jump on in. So last episode, we considered how might we articulate religio to help us attend to the perennial problems. How would we define religio really fast? That is what is like a set of practices and um, enlightenment. I think it is kind of another word for that state of being in a well, a religious state or a state of enlightenment or I guess religion without heightened consciousness without the you know religion without the dogmatic component of it. You know what is the essence of what religion does. Not necessarily which religion. Yeah, let's. Oh man, this thing keeps dropping. Do I have a quarter in my pocket? Uh, I do not have a quarter in my pocket. Oh, no, I do have the a Oxford quarter. Dictionary. The belief in or worship. Not no, not that one. No religio. Doesn't know because you know. Yeah, these words are new. Well, no, that's that's an old, old yeah, Greek I, I, word. I know. It's being censored by the interwebs. Combining form. It is the coming together. So it is like the communal aspect of wisdom cultivation of en- enlightenment traditions, wisdom schools, all of these things. We're trying to cultivate the state of enlightenment. And, and the question that we're trying to cover, or we were in the previous episode, that Verveke, I should say, was trying to cover, was how might we reverse engineer enlightenment such that we can understand how we can cultivate it as a counteractive source, a counteractive dynamical system. So a set of systems, like the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, for instance, a set of systems that allow us to cultivate enlightenment in order to deal with, counteract the force of um, disillusion in our societies and within ourselves. And this is awakening from the meaning crisis at its core, basically. So we're really deep in it now, guys. And if any of this seems interesting, if you're familiar with John Verveke or you've never heard of him before, but you have noticed the crisis of meaning occurring in our world today, the breakdown, the ongoing and growing division, then uh, this was made for us in this time. And Verveke has put his life's work into this project. And this is the beginning of uh, a a path that we can share in together. So we did a uh, a real quick overview of how the mind works and then where it falters within each of its um, functional, structural, and developmental um, areas. So we talked about self-organization, you know, trade-off relationships. Um, the bad part of that is parasitic processing, um, self-ID, the, ne- the negative end of that is modal confusion, self-reflection, which is uh, the unoptimized reflectiveness gap, which you need reflectiveness to remove yourself from a problem to be able to see the problem. But if you reflect too much, then you can't act. So that's our self-identification side. That's the self-reflection side. Self-reflection. Self-ID is the modal confusion modal between confusion. being mode and having mode. Oh, yes. There we are. And there then are. on the structural end, we have the agent arena issues so you have self to the world which is this clash of perspectives absurdity Mm -hmm. self to self 
the sense of s absurdity in what's happening in the world yeah. and in the things that you see coming out of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have the clash of perspectives, which is self to self. Mm -hmm. um, or yeah. That's, that's excuse me, people uh, interacting, basically. Not class well, perspectives. Self me. to others. Hold on. That was wrong. It's self deception, which is anxiety is self to self. And then self to others that's is right. alienation. That's right. Yeah. So the experience of absurdity when experiences within themselves. The sense of anxiety when experiences along with others, around no, others. No, no. Uh, Am I mixing that up? Clash, the absurdity is self to the world. The world is drastically changed in a way where you no longer have a meaningful grasp of what it is. That's right. So that your relation with yeah, the world, yeah, the relation with yourself. Is the um, anxiety. Is the anxiety. And then uh, relationship with others, um, yourself to others, is alienation. Is alienation. And we're not going to go too deep into it because the next part we go Thank over goes real deep. I didn't have that part in my notes right. Well, that makes a lot yeah, more sense. Yeah, I have it written weird, so it kind of threw me off. And then uh, on great, your great breakdown, dude. That's awesome. Your developmental end. Um, alienation, of course, is others. Anxiety is something that we're experiencing yeah. because of our own thoughts. And then self to the world, the modal confusion of agent and arena. Confusing what kind of arena you're in and the lack of understanding of oneself as an agent. Or having your fundamental framings broken too much to the point of mm -hmm. horror. You don't know how to frame in this know. new reality. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. That's uh, happening Because absurdity lot. goes into Experience of domicide that we yeah. went over in previous episodes. So on our developmental end and understanding that our cognition is self-developmental, um, you can de there's developed by functioning and its issues is existential inertia which needs anagage and external inertia is um you know got to do this got to do that got to do this got to do that i need to do this thing i need to do that thing and then the other end mm. the function by developing is existential ignorance well you know i should I? Should I? on the right page. I um, see it, we at. go over it again, so yeah. that's the one thing that's confusing. These that's are just right, the quick points. That's right because he he continually broke it down throughout this episode. Yeah, and that's basically where we're at right now. Is so we have these functional, structural, and developmental. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know what would we call that? The functional, like not modes, but the oh. functional, structural, and developmental. Processing. Sides or pro yeah. of our processing, aspects to our processing, we yeah. can say. All right. And so we're back to self-organization and parasitic processing. Which so what do we functional. What do we do about this? Is Now mm -hmm. at this point in the episode, we're talking about what do we do. And yeah, because we have this capacity to deceive ourselves. We have the capacity mm -hmm. to BS ourselves. And, yeah. And, and so that's parasitic processing. Particularly with heuristic, like a buildup of heuristics that end up taking over and are no longer... Mm -hmm fit to the task like you know like um i've mentioned this before but you know like you get bitten by a dog once mm -hmm. and you think okay well screw that dog but then you start freaking out and it's like well you know more dogs and or all dogs of that breed or and then just all dogs and that and well you know i gotta stay away from dogs and freak out and then even the sound of dogs now and you know it's giving me so much trouble um and it just loops and loops and loops. So what he proposes is that we cultivate a counteractive dynamical system, um, yes. internalized system. Um, and he, the example was the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. That was just one example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and we see the path of following Christ in Christianity to, be, to learn how to emulate the one who most perfectly embodied the state of agape, of unconditional lovingness for all things and everyone. So to get over the self-ID modal confusion issue, we talked about this before during 
uh, a previous episode, but um, uh, Sati, mm-hmm. with, um, you know, uh, that kind of awakening, remembering kind of to remembering. the proper mode and orientation, mm-hmm. you know, from the having. Well, I I, I need to ha- I need to have a family. I need yeah, to have a house because yeah. we can have a having mode orientation to everything in life. Yeah, and then we're in this constant state of wantonness. Yeah. And that's a miserable state to be in because whatever you get never quite fills the void. It never quite satiates, maybe temporarily, like some artificial flavoring can Mm -hmm. or some junk food can temporarily satiate your hunger. But it's really not going to be nutritious for you and help you grow optimally. A good example he made um, in the episodes talking about that was you have sex. Um, opposed to like making love. Mm-hmm. So having mode versus being mode. Yeah. So um, that's, that's where we're at. Sati helps with the self-identification the issues. The being mode. Um, uh, the reflection issues getting into the flow state. So you know, not not just going o- mm-hmm. overly reflective, mm-hmm. but getting into this the the what is that uh, the. The optimal. Uh, but, oh man, it's the, I want to say the canal of optimal uh, functioning. Oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Basically just above your competency level, but not so much you get anxiety. That's an old one. By, by getting in, into that state. The trajectory um, of optimal or something like that. Yeah, by getting into that state, uh, you're able to. Well, it's basically balance. that state is where you're at the edge of your ability. Yeah, yeah. And what, what is the other side of that? A- uh, anxiety. So being just at, above your competency level, but not so much that you get anxious. Right. Right on the edge yeah. of what you can so that, handle. So that it's area, consistently challenging. Yeah. That and area you can, there. You can get in, that's how you can trigger a flow state. And that'll, and that'll help you not become so reflective that you are mm-hmm. no longer engaged. So it with, takes a lot of preparation and skill mm-hmm. training, basically, at whatever you're trying to do in the flow state. Yeah. You actually have to get good at something yes. that can trigger the flow state yes. um, through practice. Right. Whether it's like music, video games, uh, sports, uh, being a good debater, a conversation haver, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Um, right. In all aspects of life. And this is being mode. So, And the problem here, that well, the reason we're talking about having mode and being mode right now is because we can get them confused. The things that we need to satiate our being mode, we, we try and approach through a having mode orientation. And that orientation is constantly self-destructive. Yeah. So for the class, the clash of perspective, um, this, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, absurdity. Um, it's, what is it? Sentia, uh, sentia perspectiva. It's a scaling up and down of mm-hmm. perspective at the same time. So yes. getting into the kind of non-dual thing, but at another level. Mm-hmm. To deal with anxiety, internalizing the sage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to go deeper into these in the next section of these notes as well. This is just the list that he gave us, so we know what we're talking to. Talking about alienation, um, this idea of communitas, which gives you a sense of connectedness to others. Um, his example was the uh, authentic discourse movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, existential entra- entrapment and that in and, and gnosis is the thing that will help with that so getting into a and let's just run through all of that as we go here because it's, it's this is going to be a lengthy review oh um, I, i'm almost i'm almost done. all right um all must be um wi- all of this must be within a wisdom framing yeah um so we can we must av- avoid self-deception 
um, while encouraging, you know, self-enlightenment or, you know, right. self-indignant. So, so we hope correct for the functional, structural, and, and developmental uh, mistakes and divergences that we make and yeah. the uh, symptoms of them, the absurdity, the existential inertia, the parasitic process, processing. All of these things are interacting and exacerbating each other. So we are looking for a counteractive mm -hmm. system of psychotechnologies. And the term psychotechnology is just like anything that we use to, to either communicate or develop something mentally, such as we use language to speak, and we can get better at speaking. Yeah. Uh, there's very many psychotechnologies. Mathematics are another. And we're looking for those wisdom psychotechnologies such as mindfulness that encompasses, you know, self-reflection and contemplation. And, and the important part is... Movement practices can be brought into this. While reverse engineering this enlightenment, we must do it in a demystified and practical way in order to create a scientific theory of enlightenment. So mm -hmm. it's not, you know, just... You know, just do your sun salutations in the morning, you know, bring you to spiritual no, no, enlightenment. No, no, no. We're, we're know, literally trying to create yeah. strong firewalls and wise and minds that are, that can become, that can cultivate wisdom. Maybe not, we're going to say that we can make minds that are wise, you know, what, what is wise ultimately, but we are going to continually try and cultivate wisdom. And there's no cap to enlightenment, mm -hmm. to the cultivation of our own inner wisdom and our capacity to understand when there is deception being wielded against us or we are doing it to ourselves talking ourselves down from something or out of something that we actually could achieve if we really put our hearts and minds to it so we want to be aware of that parasitic processing uh, and so on and so forth and we're going to explore briefly everything and then jump into the episode yeah, here, I, guys, I, I, so. can, I can get through this actually pretty quick so let's do it um, to deal with parasitic processing like we said before is cultivate a set of practices the eight pulp fold path as an example that are in independent and interdependent and s basically self-rolling mm -hmm. um so this this thing the the lingo for this is counteractive dynamical systems and he gave the goldsmith story you know you got a piece of gold you don't just look at it because nothing happens you don't just heat it because all it does is just melt but you also have to craft it the art and all those together give it value um um, and they're all complementary relationships to each other in order to create the golden art. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, psychotechnology is working together and practiced. Yes. Um, yes. So modal confusion, like we said, sati, encouraging the sati, um, remembering the reflectiveness gap, flow state. So both scaling up and down. Um, so set up practices and conditions that enhance flow. So creating new systems in order to... Uh, new flow state inductive induction mechanisms, right? Mm -hmm. And we must be responsible with them as well because you can get into the flow state and not learn a damn thing. That's right. Um, That's right. You want to be con you know, consciously inquisitive. Yeah. And so to deal with absurdity, um, parajna. Well, we s did we skip? Uh, oh, no. Okay. Yeah. You're right. I see where um, Absurdity. See where so there. parajna, which is, um, so attention is scaling up and down. So you have a precursor argument that leads up into a meta argument and le just like letters lead into words and we can study the epics in order to kind of get this yes type of uh intuitive knowing so you know mm -hmm. like spinoza mentioned the ethics of blessedness and sacredness yeah. our relation with the world can be co-creative yeah. becoming the best person developing the best life not just the most morally correct 
so in, in to achieve this, we require worldview attunement through a practice of ethics and a, logistic, a logical mm -hmm. structure of ethics that helps develop intuitive knowing. Yeah, so basically it's you can you got two arguments and you can see the fittedness of each argument to the whole. That's right. And prajna mm -hmm. is a self-liberated state of wisdom. Simultaneously, mm -hmm. it's us looking as far in as we can far out. Mm -hmm. And in mindfulness practice, you are practicing both. You're practicing both inquiry and you're practicing contemplation. Yeah. So with anxiety, this inter in inner conflict, not interconflict, inner conflict, with no specific target, internalizing the sage. So creating an inner mm -hmm. dialogue, much like, you know, um, what Plato did with his dialogue. This There's is to this deal inner, with anxiety. Yes, it's yeah. to deal with that, you know, get multiple portions of your mind talking to mm -hmm. each other and working something out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that sense of something wrong that has to do with an inner conflict, but there's no specific sense of threat that's easily nameable. That's anxiety, yeah, yeah. a state of being at war within oneself. So you internalize the sage to incorporate the various centers. Yeah. We need that internalizer, internalized representative model, a role model of some sort. So internalize the sage, be it Socrates, be it Jesus, be it Buddha. Yeah, and that gets into um, identification. So you can internalize another's perspective or you can indwell, and indwelling is like, what would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, what would, yeah, put, your, put yourself and, in their shoes and indwell yeah, within and their see shoes. From their and, eyes. and then the eternalizing is seeing from their perspective, and the indwelling is bringing it into you and doing, you know, basically, mm -hmm. not maybe necessarily physically doing it, but going through the process of like, if I was such and such what would, would i yeah. be doing if i was socrates how would yeah. i see this situation yeah. this question that i have for myself that i'm trying to understand so to deal with alienation we have communitas a flowing uh um, communion a collective flow in which we feel there is real communication and common shared identity slash spirit like singing in church um like look at how our uh, we have to look at how our practices of communication are undermined by the the bullshit yeah so to help solve for and correct create a counteractive force against the alienation in our lives we can utilize communitas yeah communal and, group flow and his, states. his example was the authentic discourse slash relating um yeah. That's the contemplatio side yeah. of it, too, in a sense. You know, you go to church in an ex extroverted way to share your love with the world and with God. Yeah. It's like a returning of the gift. And it allows us to reaccess other kinds of knowing. Temple. And in the, how they are interdependent in the process of attunement. Mm. Um, so coherence was a word that we used um, that somebody else, uh, I won't say coined, but used for this. Sorry, I don't get the name. I'm not a name person. Communitas engaging the collective. Jordan Hall was that guy. Um, so engaging. Jordan Hall's awesome, by the way, guys. Check him out. I'm sorry, I keep cutting you off, man. Communitas. Uh, so engaging the collective distributed cognition. So this is allowing us to use multiple minds to work on a singular issue. Yeah, well said. Communitas um, to engage our collective intelligence. Yeah, and Most freeing us of our historical grammar. Yeah, that is can give us some trouble because most problem solving is done in concert and we want to marshal our distributive cognitive networks and its collective intelligence to free us 
and access types of knowing to bring to bear on the problems we're facing. Yeah. That's a quote. Yes, yes. So it's giving us the tools and the ability to figure it out and do. Yes. Um, Together. Yeah. Yeah. Communally. I, so in, in concert. In, 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 what's the to word? To get coherence and to solve, because there's high level problems that we're facing in this world today. We're in the midst of what has been termed a meta crisis. It's mm-hmm. myriad existential, meaning life threatening crises to our species that are all simultaneously ongoing. And that meta crisis, how do you confront such a thing? You, we have to develop ourselves, not just internally, solely, but in groups and develop our flow capacity for being in flow with one another to be able to have these high level problem solving, um, you know, mind melding experiences that Verbeke terms dialogos that we're actually capable of having. You can put some, you know, high level mindfulness practitioners, you could say some experienced practitioners in a room together who are also practiced in like circling or other kinds of uh, communal discourse. Um, there's there's a, some beautiful videos on Brevaki's channel that you guys can check out if you go and subscribe to John Brevaki. I highly encourage you to do that. So the, the, that system, like um, dialogos and circling, and that are mm-hmm. emergent dynamical systems, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which give people the resources to adapt one themselves and everybody who's involved yes. fittedness to, to the task at hand that's a well said you know whether whether it's like a you know a thought problem or even if you're working to like figure out like what's broken in an engine you get three dudes together and they mm-hmm. all or you know even better for you know you have and the kind of a logos develops yeah like that's yeah. like an overmind of all the intelligences mm-hmm. at once and it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like any one person individually yet it's coming yeah. through all people and this occurs all the time um or it can occur all the time, I should say. It used to occur often in, our, I think, our deep past. Mm-hmm. But, and then it was still practiced during the times of the Republic and Plato. But this has really fizzled away over the recent centuries. Yeah, so, and then the last bit is just dealing with um, existential entrapment. And that's yeah. gnosis, these, this, these higher states of knowing this yes. open-ended mythos, ever-evolving symbol that keeps going and you know we're um it's not like you know a mystical mythos or anything like that it's remember the you know a mythos is a symbol in which we can use to hold on to vast amounts of vaster amounts of information than Mm -hmm. your mind might normally or a meme relates to something and a a symbol doesn't have to be a physical object either like you know mythos is not a necessarily physical object it's it's basically an educational story species level to teach us about how to deal with the perennial problems the ongoing repeating problems that we continually face as as a human species yeah and and cultural problems within these emergent dynamical systems that are building themselves as well they can develop their own mythos much like you know a um like um you know a fandom will do with you know like there's the whole mythos of star trek and star wars and you know warhammer 40k and everything sure. that is being built as it's you know um as as they're being as played going, or as, as they're being going. watched that's you what know, these are participated the myths are in. transgressive open-ended and ongoing stories yeah so not progressive not regressive beyond yeah. both of those two it's ever expanding and that's uh, all i in got all, in all directions all right 
Hey, we did it in 25 minutes. Woo! Right on. (laughs) It's about that time, guys. We're going to be jumping in now. And we're going to be led by Professor John Verveke out of the University of Toronto, award-winning lecturer, uh, Cogsci, and uh, Qigong master, and meditation teacher, mindfulness teacher, I should say, and uh, circling and dialogos practitioner, along with his friends Guy Sinstock and Jordan Hall and Christopher Pietro. And you can check out all of these guys and go to John Verbeke's channel to find them. because there's so much more that happens after we end this 50 lecture series that we're in the midst of. But Verbeke has put his heart and soul, and you can tell, a great deal of work, thoughtful work, into creating this series for us to help us together figure out how may we awaken from the meaning crisis as one. can't believe I got all that out. Sometimes you just have to let the words speak themselves. So we're jumping in now. It's episode 38 of the series on Agape and 4E Cognitive Science. Agape! Agape! Here we go. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we were taking a look at the perennial problems that are endemic to us precisely because of the functioning and structuring and development of our adaptive uh, religio, the very processes that make us intelligently adaptive, also make us vulnerable uh, to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. And I propose to you that we can address parasitic processing with a counteractive dynamical system. We can address modal confusion by the cultivation of sati. We can address the reflectiveness gap by the cultivation of flow. We can address absurdity by cultivating prajna. We can address anxiety by cultivating inner dialogue, by internalizing the sage through a process of internalization and indwelling that allows us to um, identify with the sage. We can address the process of alienation through the cultivation of communitas. And if I mentioned to you some new sets of communal psychotechnologies um, that are emerging and people who are trying to develop um, thinking about um, uh, how to make use of authentic relating, uh, circling, uh, trying to uh, break through um, our current uh, cultural grammar uh, to uh, a form of authentic discourse and relating. So that's on offer. Um, and that w- we can respond to um, existential entrapment by the, cultivating the cultivation of gnosis, uh, which can be power empowered by a core capacity for realizing higher states of consciousness. Uh, So what you have is basically a higher state of consciousness that is empowering Gnosis, right? And that, right, is, of course, set within. Part of Gnosis, as you remember, I argued, is it has to be set within a proper ritual context, etc. I remind you all of that. And that this 
uh, is being used right, to cultivate and, of course, is being reflectively um, uh, transformed by a counteractive uh, dynamical system that is going to, of course, get you sets of practices for cultivating sati, cultivating flow, cultivating prajna, cultivating communitas, cultivating inner dialogue, etc. When this is set within a wisdom framing, which so that comprehensively the person is developing interlocking sets of virtues for addressing self-deception and for affording self-optimization. And this results in a reliable response of amelioration and alleviation of the perennial problems, I would say that's enlightenment, at least the en en enlightenment that I'm trying to reverse engineer. The components can each ultimately be explained and understood by our best cognitive science, I believe. At least I've given you reason that, that we can rationally hope that. What, of course, needs to be done is to still try and articulate wisdom from a scientific perspective. And, of course, that is one of the most exciting things that's happening right now, something that I am privileged to participate in. All of the ongoing scientific work, whether the psychological, cognitive scientific, even neuroscientific work on what does wisdom mean and how can we cultivate it. And there's just so many people, and we're, we're going to talk about that at length. We need to do something else because we need to talk about the way in which this whole project, as I said, can be delegitimized, undermined, eroded if these whole sets of practices can't be situated uh, within an encompassing and welcoming worldview. So having a ecology of psychotechnologies for addressing the perennial problems is necessary, but of course not sufficient for responding to the meaning crisis. I've been encouraged by meeting so many people that are trying to set up, try to, uh, try, uh, I, I keep worrying, I, I, I want my language to be responsive to the, the creativity of these individuals the, 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 who are trying to create these um, ecologies of Psychotechnologies. I've talked to Rafe Kelly, for example. He's, he's done, done some amazing uh, work uh, on uh, trying to bring together aspects of parkour, the martial arts, people uh, get doing something like the circling practice, right? And, and again, th create this e ecology of practices. Uh, I'm talking to Michael Nathan, and he's trying to integrate uh, ideas about the training and cultivation of wisdom into uh, the training of martial arts in order, again, to try and realize, uh, you know, the, uh, 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 an ecology of practices for responding to the meaning crisis. 
And so there's many people out there already doing this. So I, I don't, I, 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 I want to indicate that I'm pointing to something that people are already doing. I'm not trying to take credit for it, but I'm hoping that, and there's, I'd be getting some supportive feedback though, that the work I'm doing here with you of trying to articulate that can help facilitate uh, the, these groups um, and help them uh, coordinate and communicate and potentially commune with each other in a, in a, in a mutually uh, beneficial fashion. So a couple more things. We, we need to go back to this. We need to talk about the integration uh, um, with the historical forces because there's a particular issue that comes to the, the fore. So this is the plan for going forward. Let's talk about um, the interaction between the historical forces and the perennial problems. Let, and let's talk about um, more explicitly, can we respond to um, the loss of the three orders and the worldview misattunement? And then what that would look like. And, 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 and again, I, I'm not proposing to found. I'm trying to just talk about what I see emerging and hopefully give some suggestive steps towards can we get that religion that's not a religion? And then put that into dialogue with other people who have engaged in similar projects, people like Tillich and Young and Corbin and Barfield. And, and, and so that we've got at least, I hope, a very uh, rich um, dialogue with, with a lot of momentum to it uh, for trying to get to this religion that's not a religion. Okay. <coughs> so, the historical forces, the loss of the three orders, let's remember this and why it matters. So you've lost the three orders, you've, we've lost the nomological, and the nomological basically gives us this deep sense of coherence and connectedness. Right, that is so central, we know from our current work on meaning in life, we, we, we lost the normative order, right, which gives us, I would argue, that sense of significance, depth that we get, right, um, through self-transcendence. And of course, we've lost the narrative order, which gives us a sense of purpose or, or direction. And then, as we've lost this, Right? We have a worldview, again, in which we don't belong, in, in which our projects don't belong, etc. And, of course, that will interact with, it will exacerbate any attempts that individuals or groups have in addressing perennial problems. And when you get that going, that's when the meaning crisis really bites you uh, individually, or, right, it really it gnaws at you. Uh, as a person or as a community or as a group. Now, I want to talk about, first of all, this interaction because it brings up a particular problem. And here again, I'm going to point to the seminal work of Wolf uh, on her book um, on uh, meaning in life at why it, why it matters. Um, so I, I was interviewed by Leandro on a podcast, um, Manifested Well-Being, and then he, he then later um, recently 
uh, interviewed uh, Wolf and her work on meaning in life. So I recommend you uh, going to that to, 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 to take a look at her uh, work, also reading her book. Uh, if you remember, she says that meaning in life is ultimately about a kind of um, deep connectedness that we want. So we have all these metaphors. Uh, you, we want to be we want to be connected to something larger than ourselves, bigger than ourselves, um, etc. And that's what makes our life meaningful. And of course, it's this notion of connectedness. Uh, but she says those are metaphors. They're what I would call their symbolic expressions uh, of, of what, what, what people are really saying is um, they, they want this. She talks about it this way. And think about how this just sings to everything we've been doing here. We want subjective attraction to find salient, right, and to be drawn into. We want subjective attraction to, that meets to, that connects with, that conforms to, objective attractiveness. Right. So notice here, you know, notice here, but of course, the, the, the transjectivity here, that it's actually in here that the, the meaning is to be found. And, and notice also the connectivity and how much this is, you know, the, the relevance realizing, you know, the deep connected connection, the deep caring, the deep involvement the deep participation. Okay, so that all lines up, but then, but then, of course, and here's where this and this interact, right? What happens is, she says, ah, because of this, we know there's no such thing as this. We know there's no such thing as this. The scientific revolution and the loss, there's nothing that is objectively attractive. Right? This is a particular grammar, right? This is the grammar again that, you know, right? You know, there isn't an in, there is, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no meaning or relevance in this thing, in itself. This is ultimately a, a sort of a Kantian argument. And Will sort of leaves it there. Um, she does allude to ways in which we can bullshit ourselves. We can pretend we have objective attraction just by finding um, a group of people who agree to value the same things we do. And that is a kind of bullshitting because the salience of the group is actually masking whether or not it's uh, given us what we're looking for. And she criticizes all of those attempts, um, I think, quite rightly. And that's where she sort of leaves it, um, at least when I read the book. Um, I, I don't know of more recent work she's got an answer to it. So work I'm doing with uh, Talia Vrentidis, uh, 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 Jim Sun Kim, Philip Rizowick, uh, we're, we're, we're really trying to um, say, is there a way uh, of addressing this problem using um, the current uh, cognitive science, cognitive psychology, neuroscience, etc. I won't keep saying everything that's in cognitive science. Um, you know, philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, machine learning. Can we use all of that, the best of that, to uh, address um, this issue? See, so notice that, again, this issue is an issue in which historical forces prevent sort of the fundamental legitimation of the whole project 
that we would try to use to address the perennial problems. Okay, so what can we think about this? Well, part of it is, uh, I think, to ask if do we need things to be objectively valuable? Uh, so what that means is that things would have a value independent about how I would value them or how you would value them. And there's a particular move that you can make that doesn't require that the thing has objective value, right? Instead, you could think about the set of characteristics that need to exist in order for uh, meaning to be created. And so what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to point you towards, and I, I, we have to go very delicately, right? I'm trying to point you towards that it's actually the transjectivity of the relationship that we need. And we don't really need objective attractiveness. That's not quite right. So let's think about this. Relevance realization is inherently interested in itself because, as I've argued, that's constitutive of it being a self-organizing, self-correcting, self-optimizing, self-developing, evolving process. Relevance realization is not something in me. It's not something in the world. It's in the, it, it emerges in the affordances that are co-created by the world in myself. It's bidirectional in that fashion. So what I need to be connected to, I would argue, is I need to be connected to finding, I need to be connected to those conditions that afford relevance realization itself. Those conditions that satisfy my inherent valuing of the relevance realization process it itself. So, so, what does that mean? What that means is, I ultimately am want to care about the conditions that afford meaning-making itself. Those conditions, right, are universal in a sense. Not in the sense that they are the same environmental conditions or the same psychological, but the same set of conditions that make possible and afford meaning-making itself. Now this sounds all very abstract, and now I want to try and turn it around, uh, and this is something that I, I'm, I'm arguing for, right? That when we care when to, to create 
the conditions of meaning making because we find them inherently valuable because that is constitutive of our capacity to be agents and to value anything else. When we're doing that, what we're actually engaging in is agape. Agape is to love for its own sake the process of right the process of meaning making and the process of meaning making is the process of being a person ultimately this is agape and that's why of course the things that contribute most significantly to meaning in life is our sense of being connected to other people agopically. I'm uh, what I'm saying to you is that there is a way of responding to this, which is the cultivation, the realization, the appreciation of agape. And you say, but there's no objective value to meaning making. Of course there isn't. But it, that, it's not subjective or arbitrary. It is transjective. And it is, in that sense, transcendental. In a Kantian sense, it is uh, the, right, what I'm involved with are the very conditions on the possibility of meaning-making itself. So to, to agopically love people, of course, is not just to be directed at that body and mind. It's be to be directed at their conditions, their community, their environment, their development, their education. That's agape. That exists independently of me, of you, of us, of a group, because agape precedes, permeates, and follows us. All right, we're back. Seems like a good spot to take a pause. Let us reflect. All right. So Where have we've been, man. Wow. He broke down the schema that we're working with. Is mm -hmm. uh, so higher states of consciousness, empowering gnosis, growing out of that um, is counteractive dynamical systems, and those reflecting, going from one to the other, reflecting each other. Um, yeah, interlocking with, sets of features yeah. that result in reliable uh, response. To the uh, amelioration, the uh, alleviation. Yeah, so of, of that within a wisdom framing mm -hmm. creates a reliable response, ameliorating, alleviating, and uh, um, excuse me, the amelioration and alleviation of the perennial problems. So, so he's calling this enlightenment. Yes, cultivating the ongoing yeah. enlightenment of ourselves and and in a communal aspect with along with one another is the the set of psychotechnologies that we need to counteract the in, intergoing or interacting kind of self. They're basically exacerbating one another, the historical conditions that we're in and the, on, and the repeating perennial problems that we run into as a species. So that's the schema. The wisdom framing uh, is what's going on between the interaction between the gnosis or the higher states of consciousness that empower gnosis and the counteractive dynamical system mm -hmm. that helps us systems that help us cultivate sati flow communitas etc. And he mentioned also that we have to be, we have to talk, um, we have to talk about how all this can be undermined by 
um, a lack of a welcoming worldview, if you will. Um, how can be? Mm-hmm. Excuse me. No. Mm-hmm. How can it be undermined? And yeah. how can we? How can we prevent that? Is by. Um, That's what we need have, to study. We need to know yeah. how the set of practices can be compromised, and then how to create conditions in which it can be best yeah. in which it can best uh, succeed. So he brings up people like Rafe Kelly. Yeah. who has integrated parkour and martial arts. Yeah, that's the ecology of psychotechnology. So yeah. there's a lot of different people. A that, lot of people that are, that are on the edge playing with this stuff. It, it's necessary, but not the be-all, end-all. This either. is what we do when we go you to know. church. Yeah. You know, we're trying to find that agape posture, that orientation to life again, where we care not just about the person, but their relation with everything and everyone around them. Yeah. So... So it's a plan for integration. Yeah, and we need to understand that. Yeah, we need with to, the historical forces yeah, yeah. and the perennial problems, um, yeah. and the interactions between historical forces and perennial problems, mm-hmm. um, and the overarching misattunement, of, you know, of our world attunement. Yes, um, a religion that is not a religion mm-hmm. ultimately. How to um, respond to the loss of the three orders and the worldview attunement that we've lost? How to deal with that? Yes. How can we achieve a religion that's not a religion in the yeah. sense of what is a, re- a religion or religious way of being in the world that we can encompass and take on and interact with together that is not disagreeable to all different kinds of peoples and cultures? What is the overriding What is the, or and the underlying? Well, and what is, yeah, what is the core of what of, religion does? Of what religion, exactly. You what know, is the core of what religion does? Not necessarily what the religion says or ha- or how the practices go, but what is the core of so we can understand what we're doing with each yeah. of our religions yeah. and find ways that they can co-create in a communal fashion with one another instead of this constantly ongo- ongoing, fragmenting, warring fashion yeah. that we've taken on in modern context. So the three orders, since we're going to uh, be talking about them, uh, the three orders are pneumological, which is coherence and connectedness, mm-hmm. normative, which is a, a, the depth, like how deep of experience significance. Of significance and depth. Mm-hmm. And then the narrative order is the purpose and direction. Um, and narrative, you know, you can see this. It's like we write stories that are mm-hmm. narratives that have a purpose and a direction. So that's an yep. easy way to keep track of that one. So these are the three orders, the nomological, the normative, and the narrative. Yeah, and we kind of, you know, we kind of lost the nomological order uh, recently in a, in, a, in a very deep way, you know, yes. going through, you know, COVID. Well, and we've also lost our normative, the sense yeah. and depth of experience of life. Yeah. You know, only yeah. once in a while are we taken aback by a sunset or and a bird in a tree, you know. And we've replaced our narrative or <laughs> our narratives with some pretty toxic crap. And by mm-hmm. toxic, I mean, like, if it gets on you, it, it poisons you badly and uh, you could die. Our sense of purpose and direction <laughs> and has it, been severely compromised. So the loss of these three orders is really gnawing mode at instead us. of being mode, yeah. Um, and causing much anxiety. Yeah, there's a lot um, of agent arena confusion going on. Yeah. So the historical forces exacerbate the perennial problems, which are the repeating challenges that an intelligent species faces that we see occurring throughout history. So he brings up Susan Wolf and her book Meaning and Life and Why It Matters. This sounds really good. She talks about the deep connectedness. Meaning in life is about that we can, deep, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of connectedness. And I think not just her book, but also like the idea of meaning in life. Mm-hmm. Your meaning in life is that we can connect with that sense of how we can want to connect with something larger and greater than ourselves. She's, she, and this is a quote. She says, "We want subjective attraction to objective attractiveness. So we subjectively, inwardly, feel attracted to what outwardly we find objective, or things that out, outwardly would be termed." 
objectively attractive. And and she comes to this reasoning that this is kind of a postmodernist view. Because of this, there's no meaning or relevance to anything. Nothing's truly objectively anything attractive we just subjectively find it so yeah and particularly you know the 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 loss of the three orders as well Mm -hmm. Um, this has really disrupted our sense of groundedness in the world today because we're used to finding things objectively a certain way and mathematics helps us to measure things objectively so we're very much framed to give us the illusion of absolute objectiveness even though we know you know so so what is beyond nothing matters and nothing has any meaning or everything matters and everything has meaning is something that yeah she did have a critique about uh you know bullshitting uh which is like you know we can find others that agree with us about mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. therefore we're still you know subject to self-bullshitting yeah so we need a solution to this and yeah. for vacant notes that relevance realization is something that is yeah. inherently interested in its own process because self-development self-correcting processes help us well before you get to that though he brings up yeah sure but I, I then we can drop back a little bit but the, they they relevance realization is this bi-directional process that grows itself continually the more that we the more that it has an interest in its own processing of how it's how it's doing what it's doing so the more we're interested in what's relevant the more we can charge up that relevance realization machine in our minds well, the question is: Is do we need things to be? And how to do that? Um, objectively valuable. Like, that was that was do the we, question. Do, do we need the you know the lump of gold to have intrinsic mm-hmm. value? Do, exactly. we, do we need that? Exactly. Um, instead, we should be looking at where are the characteristics that need to exist in order for meaning to be created. That's in a transjective way. That is the key. And uh, and relevance realization is inherently. Um, so, self-interested so. and self-creating so it charges self-organizing it's, it's a self-running machine basically yes. that yeah. can charge itself up and it's continually adaptive so, what, so that, that what's, problem what's there is, that, that... is such a big problem isn't it yeah. because we are constantly looking at the world either subjectively or we're trying to measure it objectively to understand it and that we've forgotten that we have a way within us an orientation to life that is an, a, a high interest in our co-creative involvement mm-hmm. in the making of this world. Mm-hmm. That is that is the solution, yeah. and and what are this the, is a way of being. That's why you hear like Jesus was known yeah, as. Yeah, the, we need to be very much connected to those conditions that afford meaning making yes, itself. Yeah, early Christians were followers mm-hmm. of the way before they yeah, were even yeah. called Christ, Christian, yeah, which yeah. initially began as an insult. Yeah, it was a know. slur, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. Hey, interesting. Uh, Christianity took a slur, and then it's like okay, and, and the other way around with like the word "woke." That was originally what people who are woke were calling themselves. It was mm-hmm. like, yeah, we're you know so enlightened, we're, we're woke, and now yeah. it's turned into an insult. So it's like the inverse. Yeah, I'd be wary of calling oneself woke or identifying with groups of people that identify as woke I'm or waking, easily termed woke. I'm waking up you know? and I'm grumpy because <laughs> you know why ever think you're done? I mean, there's yeah, infinite information woke. around us in every direction, and it's always helpful to understand the other points of view better. Yeah. So that if anything, you can argue against them if you find them to be wrong and not good and true for one and all. So, so we need to be awakening, yeah, ongoing, continually. The one thing, the woke, the idea of already being woke is you don't care. Yeah, so, we're never but, done here, guys. But like what uh, Verveke says, one must care about these Infinite conditions. Infinite room to grow. Yeah, one which must are care deeply. universal and not un- you know, not universal in the standard sense, but the, the universal that they the the same sets that make meaning making po- the same. 
universal to the sets of conditions that conditions, afford meaning yeah. making itself. Yes. Yeah. And we got to yes. care about it. And when we care, and we are yeah, engaging in agape. And that's where he brings in the agape so smoothly, you know, loving the process of meaning making. And meaning making is the thing that makes you a person. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're... caring about the conditions and those techniques, those practices, those rituals that we can involve ourselves in that help afford it. That is the key. Yeah, that is so, the cure to Wolf's argument. Oh, yeah, sorry, that uh, you know that we care to create and find inherently valuable meaning making. Mm-hmm. In doing so, we are engaging in agape. It's to be in love with the co-creative nature of reality. Yeah, right. And this solves for the historical conditions that we find ourselves in. If masses of people start doing this. Can you imagine? And it so- helps us solve for, it helps steal us against the perennial problems that we're continually facing facing well, it will also help like, steal you know, us history repeats but it's more like it rhymes this is what's happening that's the perennial problems it should help steal us against the self-bullshitting as well you know the salience mm-hmm. without any truth yeah. to it as well because if you actually do care mm-hmm. about you know not just like what he was saying the physical you know somebody's physical body and whatever but what are they doing in life you know how, how's their mental state how are they doing school how they're fulfilling their purposes what's going on with like the actual mm-hmm. person and you're actually engaged you in this with others you, you don't care for the bullshit because yeah. the bullshit doesn't help you at yeah. all yeah and when we yeah. engage in this communally we are having so many people that we can help along the way mm-hmm. get past some of the roadblocks and the alleyways and cul-de-sacs you can fall into and, and helping we, ourselves we have others that can help check us and, yeah yeah well, and even the, the the in a proper, let's say, like sapiential community, engaging in the helping of others will end up, you know, you end up helping yourself because you're all doing this and constantly cross-checking. And then the act of being the helper informs the being the helped mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not explaining it really well, but it's you know this but way. It makes sense. You know, it goes I get both ways at the yeah. same time. Yeah. You know, like, you know, that's why, like, you know, you got people like Jordan Peterson, who seems to be probably one of the most, like, not just thoughtful people, but like, he went through hell. Yeah. And somehow, and he's still going through hell, and somehow he still has the gracefulness to be able to go through life and not be completely ripped down. And mm. I think a lot of that it's comes from spending still for over some tw- 20,000 hours dealing with patients. And learning how that works, and then well, thirty years you, in his career, you're not you're not yeah. supposed to like you know like reflect your patient in yourself, but the process, you know, the conversations you have, you start to see how things piece together. Yeah, you don't want to imprint imprint on your patient. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm just like when you go through so many patients and you see he similar, embodies a way of being though that mm-hmm. is beyond personality because it is a set of yeah. And he's a really good example of that. Characteristics that one a, can cultivate. Yeah, because anybody can cultivate. The fact that he's a clinical psychologist is a great example because, you know, he's taught to be able to draw things out of people mm-hmm. in a way that, well, is really just them really. volunteering it. Yes. In a way that they would not be able to. Ultimately, under the right conditions, yeah. the patient heals themselves. And I think Peterson picked this that's, up from that, Carl that's Jung. The best, that's the best counselor or. Uh, psychologist mm-hmm. or whatever that's the best one is you get the patient to draw it out of themselves absolutely yeah you know, instead you know, of forcing was, something on them which is modern psychology i was encouraged know. therapy prior to psychiatry and in, in that you know you're so often going to get offered a pill these days because you know these doctors psychiatrists get kickbacks they get you know they get uh once i started bonuses based off of, once i started you know, seeing terms like centering in modern psychology i started getting a little weirded out mm-hmm. because, you know centering is one of those uh commie keywords um hmm. 
and they're not centering not centering in the good way. Well, they're stealing that from ancient ritual, though, as well, yeah. which is, you know, just just make sure you understand the context that it's in when you see the words like centering and grounding. Yeah, and like that. you know, you don't need to be centering your your sex or your race or your religious belief in a counseling session. Unless, unless you know, directly, I don't know, something bad happens, like something, you know. Oh, it, de- it depends on what's happening, but you but don't have to become an... Yeah, you don't like to, to heal your identity, but by, by trying to address your outward features, and also it's, it's something that's going on. Krishna Murthy would argue the fact that you create a center creates a division between you and what really is. Therefore, sure, you can identify violence. that there is a center, and then try and look at it and realize that there's nothing really to it. But ideas and mentalization but that's once ongoing. You, once you create realize the center, that your your ego, your personality, your, your personage, your cast image that you hold to be yourself in your mind by is is basically a misidentification. It's something that we do by mistake. We don't realize that well, we are these constantly amorphous and growing beings. We get very attached to our ideas. You notice as though someone's personally attacking you violently, in some way. Well, just the like so to the point that people think words are violence now. You know. Yeah, but the very act of say draw a circle and put a center in it now you have a space between the outside edge and something in the middle so it's a vast disconnection you know it's the you know the one of the issues i have with certain i guess new agey practices you know it's this you know seeing yourself as this little center particle of something that's separate like the idea is to just get away from it can that be because ego, we're ego already magnified doing that. sometimes too you got to do that every day we we personally it's got to be grounded in a practice that's recognizing the illusion that we project through our thoughts really? of our, our images of ourselves and others you know, because it's a bunch of caricatures interacting with one another, and it's never us being real with one another. And when we can drop those senses of identification and the characters that we've developed of those we we know, and see them as they are in this moment, then something new and fresh can happen. And that's you know that's the most beautiful thing that we're constantly seeking in life. You know, it's that and he speaks about that in this episode earlier on. What is it that the spoon kid from the Matrix said? There is no spoon, you know. It's mm. not about you know bending the spoon because you know if there is no spoon. It's really just yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's you know the, the yes, you can say that there is centers to things because obviously you can draw a point in the middle of a circle, or you are the center of your own local universe because you can look outward infinitely in any direction. Um, we are the center of the size chart because it yeah. goes infinitely small and yeah. infinitely big. I, like I get that, but that's there is no center. No, if you look really deep, you find that <laughs> there, there is, is no, no there is no center to the center itself. <laughs> the thing that we're centering on to look within, we find that is interrelated and interconnected with everything and everyone around it. It's resultant from everything around it, and it's you it's know like, that's our, our even our very personalities. You know, we I didn't invent this language. And I picked up mannerisms and ideas from other people. And, you know, we put our own spin on things, but it is an interactive co-creative project that we're all involved in. And that's really cool. You know, we, we spring out from this earth. We are earthlings, extensions of, and not separate from. So when we damn ourselves as a cancer to this earth, we're just insulting the planet because that's literally, we are her, uh, we're, all like the, we're all like these animate appendages of her. We're these extensions of her that are like little feelers and sensors that are going out and they're self-reflective and aware of themselves now and they're realizing so much so fast and it's hard for us to understand how to cope with and manage ourselves uh so many of us now with such 
potential power in our creative imaginations. So, you know, all the tools and technology that we've invented that can now destroy us and the existential crises, myriad crises that we face are due to us not having yet solved this conundrum, but it's very new for our species. We've moved so fast. So it's understandable. We've got to, you know, have a little bit of grace and, and appreciation for ourselves and, you know, not to grow a big head, but to fall back in love with this co-creative process that we get to be engaged in again. It's an ongoing gift. It's this present moment. We're not here in the being mode anymore. How else are we going to be able to demonstrate the way that we wish the world could be if we cannot embody that way? Yeah. You know? So let's, let's jump back in here, guys. I think that catches us up pretty well. Yep. Right? But, um, there is no spoon, Neo. There is no spoon. You are... Imagining a spoon, Neo. And then somebody in the kitchen in the- listening to this cooking just like, what are you talking about? I have a wall of spoons. <laughs> but how one can actually uh, adapt to any situation is the key there. We're trying to affect the outer with just, we're trying to solve problems by only hacking at the branches, right? We're not attending to the root. The root begins within each one of us. And if we learn how to do that process in concert, then we really got something on. Then we got a supercharged answer to the problems we face. Like Alanis Morris said, said it's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. I can keep going with these spoon yeah. metaphors. <laughs> That's a good one. Spoon man. Big spoon, little spoon. There is no spoon. Oh, man. Come together with your hands. Save me. Oh, spoon man. Yeah, that's right. Ooh, yeah. Sometimes Come the together spoon, with your plan. Sometimes Save the spoon me. cooks up some stuff that ain't good for you. Oh, watch out for spoon man. He's got a heavy hand with them spices sometimes. All right, guys, we are jumping back in now. It's episode 38 of John Vervecki's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. If you enjoy this show, make sure to smash the like and subscribe and do so for Vervecki as well. Here we go. So, part of what it means, therefore, and and of course this was also part of the tradition, but it, it becomes especially pertinent for us. Part of how enlightenment has to be for us is that whatever machinery we craft together for addressing the perennial problems has to be integrated, grounded in an agopic way of being. And and then that, of course, makes sense, too, if you think about being within the being mode, having an I-thou relationship, etc. We have to care about the conditions that make any caring possible. So, part of what we need to do, right, is to address this issue with agape, the cultivation of agape. I think we should ultimately see agape as our deepest appreciation for the caring that is intrinsic and constitutive to the relevance realization that makes 
both the agent and the arena, arena possible. Is that, is that pointing to something that in the physics of reality? No. But it is pointing something, is it therefore just pointing to something that's romantically dwelling within my subjectivity? subjectivity? No. It's pointing to caring about something that is inherently transjective and has a value independent of my valuing of it. Because my valuing of it does not constitute it in, into existence. I emerge from it and participate in it. I am not the source or maker of it. What about the historical factors, the historical forces? So we've lost the three orders. We can, I would argue, we can make use of what's happening in third generation cog psi, 4E cog psi, in conjunction with the theoretical machinery you've been developing on the cognitive scientific side of things to address that. Uh, the way I want to do this is I want to I make use of a, an article uh, by Francisco Varela. This is not me saying that I, I think that everything that Varela has to say or all of his particular theories are, 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 are right or something like that. But Varela is one of the founding figures uh, of uh, third generation uh, 4E cognitive science. Um, he's, uh, of course, that work was, has been developed significantly since him, and uh, that's why it's important to only see him as a as a, a founding figure, not as the final figure. Uh, the seminal work of Evan Thompson. If you want to see this, these ideas taken into uh, a depth, you know, get Evan's book, Mind and Life. It's just fantastic a book. We talked about this, the deep continuity hypothesis and how it resituates us right, into an order because there's a continuity between the principles of cognition and the principles of biology and then the principles of dynamical self-organizing physical systems. Okay. But I want to pick up on this because I want to pick up on a, a uh, something that he said because he writes this piece uh, uh, and it's sort of um, autobiographical, it's simultaneously argumentative and autobiographical. And he, he wrote it in 2000. Uh, the p it's in a book called uh, The Psychology of Awakening. And he, um, he talks about what he calls steps towards a science of interbeing unfolding the Dharma implicit in cognitive science. So, so, so he relates the following thing. He was trying to, he had been asked to write an article um, about sort of, and around 2000 is when third generation CogSci was really starting uh, to develop. He, and he was, he was, it was asked to write an article, sort of what are the main insights or claims about um, this. And I want to I go through that and sort of unpack them a bit and then also unpack the elements. So, so 
sort of what are the insights of third generation cog psi. And I have been trying to exemplify them for you. I've been trying to exemplify them in th all of the lectures throughout the whole of the series, but especially since uh, episode 25. Third generation cog psi. And, or, um, and unpack the four E's. I actually think there's sort of five E's, but it's also called 5E cognitive science. And how does it address these three or the, the three orders? Well, he says, as he was doing this, what ha kept happening to him is he kept, as he kept articulating to himself um, the insights that were central to cognitive science, he found that he was constantly saying things that he found consonant with the Dharma, the central teachings of Buddhism. So he found this deep resonance uh, between the science and a particular uh, path about whereby individuals and communities actually cultivate meaning, wisdom, etc. So he, he, he lists the first one, and this is one of the four E's of cognitive science, the issue of embodiment, that we're deeply embodied. <coughs> we're deeply embodied. So here's a quote from uh, that 2001, I'm sorry, so that 2000 uh, uh, article. Mind is not program, software, or rule-bound manipulation of symbols. He means symbols in the mathematical sense, not in the uh, spiritual sense that we've been developing here. Mind is not program, software, or rule-bound manipulation of symbols. Instead, the mind right, arises through immediate coping with the world. Okay. So the idea here is, right, that we understand intelligence, and this is something I've been trying to articulate, right? We understand intelligence as our coping with the world, the way we are evolving the sensory motor loop, right? So that we deal with what, right? We deal with the problems at hand that directly afford our interaction with the world at large, right? So he uses the word coping because he's trying to get us out of a, a fascination and a fixation with our capacity for theorizing, not because he thinks that theorizing is wrong, or that would, because that would be a self-contradictory act. He's offering a theory, but he's trying to say that we have to, he's trying to get us to remember the other kinds of knowing and the way in which ultimately to be a general problem solver, to be an intelligent cognitive agent is to have this right ongoing, evolving fittedness, the coping with my immediate interactions with the world. And that this is the, the defining features he would argue, and I would agree, with being a cognitive agent. Now he calls that embodiment, 
Uh, many people might see that, uh, Evan Thompson, as enactment, right? Um, so there's a bunch of these E's here. There's embodiment. Other people might say what Varela is talking about there is embeddedness, the way we are embedded. Inactive, this is Evan Thompson's idea that cognition is an inherently something we enact, right? right? Extended, that our cognition is not in our head, but it's extended through our interactions with the world, through our psychotechnologies, through distributed cognition. Okay, those, those are the four E's. Whether or not we should pin this specifically to this, or maybe it overlaps with some of these other ones, that's fine. We're going to see more of this with Varela anyways. But notice what this is about. The embodiment is about the idea that, right, there is a deep continuity between your most abstract cognitive abilities and your most, well, embodied sensory motor action. I've tried to argue that you can see this in the following way, that your cognitive, your cognition is ultimately dependent on, grounded in, the relevance realization, and the relevance realization is ultimately grounded in your bioeconomy. Your body is not some clay that you drag around in our Cartesian fashion. Your body is a, a, a bioeconomy that enacts logistical norms of efficiency and resiliency that constrain your cognition, so that it continually evolves its fittedness to the world. There's a deep continuity between cognition and biology. And of course, the biology is, is deeply embedded. You are engaging in what biologists talk about as continual niche construction. So the new biology that's emerging I'm privileged to know, and I get to interact with Dennis Walsh here at the University of Toronto. If you want to see some people that are doing the cutting-edge work on the philosophy of biology, take a look at uh, um, uh, uh, Dennis's work uh, and, the, and the work of other people. There's an anthology, I think, uh, well, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I think it's uh, Criticizing or Reflecting on the, uh, the, the, the Grand Synthesis, the synthesis between Darwinian uh, evolution and Mendelian genetics. I'll, I'll, I'll get the right book panel to come up. Uh, but um, but uh, there is this idea about the importance of processes like niche construction for understanding evolution. And, 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 and the idea here is, right, and, and you see how I've been making use of this. There's the organism and the environment, right? And the idea is the organism is shaping the environment, shaping and selecting the environment and the environment is shaping and selecting the organism. And so uh, you, the organisms get involved with affecting the environments so that it is conducive to their way of being, but they also evolve both biologically and behaviorally 
right, to exploit and make good use of that changed environment. And you've got this transjective evolving loop going on, niche construction. We do this, of course, on a broad scale through culture because what culture is is, right, we do this thing where we massively shape the environment and then massively shape ourselves to fit that environment, right? So culture is about both fitting people to an environment and fitting the environment to the people in this ongoing uh, fashion. And so that takes us right into this notion, of course, that we are deeply embedded. We're deeply embedded. So embodiment leads to, and there's some people that argue that embeddedness sort of reduces to embodiment. Uh, Rowland seems to be arguing that in one of his books on, on the new science of the mind. But anyways, the idea here is the deep continuity. We are deeply embodied. We are deeply embedded. Now notice how that is going, right? It's undermining the way in which Descartes severed everything, right? And if, right, so this is obviously a, a, a species of niche construction, a comprehensive one, right? And, and if this, as I've tried to argue, can even tell us something important about consciousness, both its function and its phenomenology, then we can seriously respond to Descartes and say, no, no, the mind and body are not disconnected. They are in a deep continuity. And the mind and the world are not disconnected. They are in a deep continuity of embeddedness and in active processing. So, what's the second insight that um, Varela brings up? Emergence, which is like it's a major term now, and this is something that has been invoked throughout um, this series. The idea that, right. A system, uh, uh, the system is, especially if the system is self-organizing, it can produce properties right, as a system that the component parts can't possess. And so the idea is the, the mind in this sense it emerges um, out of the embodied, embedded brain coupled to a living environment. I've tried to give you ways of understanding that, uh, that emergence, um, and, and, and how it is reflected in your spirituality by your capacity for self-transcendence, and how that could be understood, at least in part, a significant part, uh, by the complexification that is inherent in your relevance realization machinery, in your religio. So what does this mean for us? This means that we are starting to get something like a vertical, vertical dimension back to our ontology. Not a two worlds vertical dimension, but the idea of emergence through complexification of right, things like biology. So you've got self-organizing things, 
and they already, right? So what processes, like the processes, combustion is self-organizing, a tornado is self-organizing, erosion is self-organizing, evolution is self-organizing. And the thing is, particular kinds of self-organization, like, like evolution can produce things that are more than self-organizing, they're, they're, right, they're self-making. This is Varela's notion of an autopoetic system. There's lots of controversies around this, right? And, um, and I don't think um, um, it, like, I, I don't think it solves everything that Varela thinks it solves, but th it, there, it is definitely the case that unlike a tornado, I am a self-organizing thing that self-organizes such that I seek out those conditions that protect and promote my agency, right? And then, of course, the self-making things, right, they can become, right, more than just self-making things, they can become self-identifying things. You can become a reflective Uh, right, self-making thing. You can uh, become aware of, come to some understanding and appreciation of your self-making, of the way in which you are inherently developmental, because that's what we're talking about when we talk about um, development, the way in which you're self-making, and then you can interact with that in ways that I've tried to show you, and so on and so forth, okay? And so self-transcendence, and notice what's happening here. A normative order is being given a metaphysical backing. Now, I, I want to come back later towards the end of the series and talk about um, this bottom-up emergence, and do, does it need to be complemented by a metaphysical idea of a top-down emanation? Um, and what, 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 what might that mean? Um, and and uh, I w I'm going to be very tentative about that because this is something that um, is you know, really trying to break free from some of the deepest grammar that, we, we, that has gotten us into the meaning uh, crisis. But right now I'm going to continue with Varela. But right now, before we continue with Varela, before... If you're carrying a bunch of boom, and I'm sorry, this mic stand is giving me so much trouble right Before now. Before we go on, yes, let us reflect on where we have been. Uh, cultivation of agape, um, you know, the combination of uh, the machinery we use to deal with perennial problems, and oh, I, didn't, I didn't get all that. Yeah, because we left off with whatever machinery we create to solve for the historical, historical conditions and perennial problems. Uh, Whatever we create must be integrated in an agopic way of being, grounded in an agopic and an ongoing cultivation of agape. Mm -hmm. Our deepest appreciation, our caring, that is constitutive to the experience of or the process of relevance realization that makes the optimal engagement of the agent in arena that optimizes the way that we interact with the world it is t today and in every different makes environment and circumstance possible. we find ourselves in. Yes. Yeah. How can we do that in the most fluid, flowing, and, and uh, I guess you could say complementary, productive way mm -hmm. that helps ameliorate the crisis and many crises we find ourselves in as a species? 
So we're looking for a way that is transjective. What does that mean? It's not in the physics of reality. It's not in, nor in our subjective impressions or experience of the physics of reality, but it has a value that is independent of it mm. and independent of my value, independent of any values that we can find in measuring, independent of any values we can subjectively find in, in you know, in uh, reflecting. This is transjective. It's not something that we create, but something that we are from. Mm. Yep. Something that we are of. So in relation with. What uh, I guess Verveke is saying is we can use the 4E psychology or third generation psychology and this theoretical machinery to address these historical forces. And cognitive science as a whole, yeah. which encompasses psychology. Anything that encompasses the study of the mind, and there's many different approaches that we have had throughout. And we covered that in the previous episodes, but that's uh, superfluous for the moment. So the, what was his name, Thomas? Francisco Varela oh, first Francisco. was a founding fither, uh, figure of cognitive science. Um, but if you're looking for, you know, just to understand it in general, uh, he, he brings him up, um, to say that not everything he says is right, but, you know, he began this process of trying to see how we can use cognitive science to optimize the ways that humans relate with one another in, in the wider world. Uh, so now if, to get to the modern progression of it to the point of 4E or 5E, depending on how you take it, you can look to Evan Thompson, who wrote The Modern Life That's and The Psychology of Awakening. Yeah, psychology of and, um, and some th there's a, a deep continuity hypothesis. He didn't get too far into that, but that something I have written here. I don't I don't know if it was Thompson or the other guy, but that, uh, he, yeah, that he brings in. Um, uh, but I, I, anyway, um, but yeah, we we get into so, the four E's here. Yeah, and what so. what are the in, basically we're going to talk about what are the insights of Sir Jens uh, uh, Cogsai. Um, and which, how does it address the three mm -hmm. orders? Which Verveke, since the beginning of this series, has actually been exemplifying for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and Thompson, you know, found himself saying things that resonated deeply with Eastern philosophy as well as mm -hmm. his scientific method. Yes, ways of cultivating wisdom. So we begin with embodiment. First E, E number one. We are deeply embodied. That is our sense of reality. Yeah. The mind is not so much programmed we may notice, uh, but, yeah. the, but the mind arises through the immediate coping with the world as it's ongoing. So we understand intelligence as a way that we can evolve our sensory apparatus, motor loop process to deal with problems, the problems at hand as we approach them that further afford our capacity for interaction with the world at large. Yeah, and that quote was, uh, mind is not programmed software or rule-bound representation of symbols. Mm. Instead, the mind arises immediate, uh, yes, immediate, immediate coping, coping with, with the, the world. world. Yep. You know, dealing with these problems that are at hand, the mm -hmm. relationships to the world at large, mm -hmm. uh, a ongoing in ways that fitted yeah, yeah because we're constantly looking on how to get a grip how to frame reality the problems at hand we're looking at in a way that directly affords our most optimal interaction with them in every given moment mm -hmm. so how can we best tune and shape ourselves to the world in any given moment not knowing what's going to be happening that's why we have this constant process of relevance realization occurring in our minds yeah and so he gets into how cog uh, cognition is grounded in relevance realization which is grounded in bioeconomy in the sense of you know like you realize which you know say which things are the most nutrient rich 
uh, because you need those nutrient like more nutrient rich is better because it takes less energy to get gather more energy. So That's you're right. you're having a realization of what is more relevant. Are you mm-hmm. going to eat, like if you're starving? Are you going to eat the fat or are you going to chew on grass? Right. You're going to eat right. the fat. Um, and that leads us into and before he even brought it up when we were talking when he was talking about cognition is embedded in biology. Um, continual niche, niche construction. That's where I had the thought is like, well, that's embodied and embedded. Mm-hmm. And then we, he went mm-hmm. on to, you know, uh, get further into it. You know, this um, continual niche construction, you know, we can look at it and helps yeah. us understand e- evolution mm-hmm. and this interaction between organism and environment, each shaping each other. Yeah. Cause we are um, coping with the environment rather than theorizing about it so much. So, yeah to optimally engage with this this living reality we can remember that so the cure for this problem is to remember the satsi mode and other kinds of knowing um that are in congruence with that ongoing evolving coping fittedness with everything that we immediately interact with the world the way that we are best optimized to yeah. to be able to do that is in a flow state yeah and or in organism organisms shape themselves to the environment and shape the environment say yes. on small scales but culture yeah we do it on a huge scales yeah we so we gotta shape we gotta the environment able... hugely shaped our, like cities look mm-hmm. at the city we completely flatten out places to put cities in and then we shape ourselves to be able to fit in those yeah. boxes on those yeah roads. and then when you're appealing to the having mode all the time you're basically optimizing for the things that are kind of like the worst angels of our nature you know they're mm-hmm. they're not the things that afford the cultivation of wisdom in a, in a culture and then in the individual and the collective, they're the things that appeal to, you know, baser instincts. Why do I need wisdom when I have two Ferraris? You know, Come sex, on now. salt, and sugars. And I must be doing something right. I have two Ferraris. Yeah, I don't need wisdom. Yeah. Screw you. Screw yeah, your wisdom. Trying to fulfill your need for enrichment and fulfillment in life with mm-hmm. objects just doesn't work. So this is why the confusion between the having and being mode that we find mm-hmm. ourselves in in modern culture is at the heart of the meaning crisis. So we're looking for an active, extended, through distributed cognition ways of responding to the meaning crisis here. Yeah. Through our embodiment. So embeddedness, being well embedded to any given situation leads to our deep embodiment, which is our answer. That's one of the E's of 4E or 5E cognitive science. Embodiment being the idea of deep continuity between our abstract sensibilities, our abstract sense of reality, and the ongoing outward action of the living environments that we are in. Yeah, so we uh, spoke on emergence, as in like the mind emerges out of the the embodied, embedded brain. That's right. Or that is... Uh, excuse me, uh, that is also embodied and embedded in an environment. And um, so this emergence moving into complexification moves into relevance realization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your mind, you know, well, and, and then back, you know, from that. So into you the know, bioeconomy you, and back into the individual body yeah. and... And, you yeah. know, and then it complexifies and not making it complicated in the sense of like messy and hard to understand, but many, many parts that mm-hmm. all work together um or maybe you know many gears to many wheels for yeah one and, and wheel many, many you know uh say relationships like or networks com- mm-hmm. you know breaking down and complexifying and 
networks reshaping is, themselves yeah. and doing that as well. And, you know, we do this as, you know, um, you know, culturally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There is a culture that emerges out of groups of people getting together for a necessity. Maybe it's because you need enough people to create food and store it up mm-hmm. and do all that. Yep. And it's an ongoing cult. And it conflict, complexifies is trying to figure out is, is realizing things as it goes, mm-hmm. thus mm-hmm. emerging as a, you know, we'll That's say right. a greater culture. That's right. But then complexifies again, realizes yeah. more. Yeah. You know, because we're in constant co creation. So I'm learning from my culture, but I'm also interacting with it and yeah. I'm adding to it. And so it's learning, becoming wiser as it goes. A self organizing system, you know, yeah. and biology and evolution do this already. So we're basically, I guess, making a natural. Like, so this, this idea of making wisdom or, you know, finding wisdom and understanding things, we can look at how evolution does it, how evolution mm-hmm. self makes and self organize mm-hmm. and what can do. And we can seek out those conditions to protect and promote our, you know, our agent agency within this ability Arena. to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in a way that's not just doing things by rote without thinking. And do, and that do so in a way as individuals mm-hmm. uh, that is so so committed and true and beautiful that it becomes a part of our cultures. And, and we become reflective and aware. You know, that like... Hmm. In the way that the world needs us to be today if we are to survive this miracle of life. Yeah, Man, we, yeah, we don't need so... too much reflection, but we need some of it. We need to be able to... We don't need so much that our heads fall off, but we need enough to be able to grasp the problems together that we face, and how can we integrate ourselves with? Yeah, we don't. We don't. The perennial problems we don't need and the, the historical we factors need, of today. We we don't need the Hamlet. We need the Prince Siddhartha that led him to, you know, right. becoming Buddha. Yeah, you know, yeah. we, you know, because there was a lot of reflection. But if he all he well he did that for a long time. He sat mm-hmm. under a freaking tree for how long? Commitment to that <laughs> process, man, and, and do so together so that we can self-check and help correct one another and inspire mm-hmm. one another and lift each other up when we're down and all of that. And it's, this is how we do it. So it's, a, it's agape, and that's, again, that's the orientation of this unconditional love for mm-hmm. all of life and the process of co-creation itself, like a joy to take part in and be in this. You know, we, we can take part in the being mode rather than trying to fill our lives with having within it's like we're becoming the verb rather than seeking out adjectives to yeah. fill some void that can never be filled by anything but the giving of love <laughs> cannot expect it so self-making things can become self-identified uh they can become reflective and aware of the way in which we are inherently developmental that's what exactly what we're doing right now at this point in history well sometimes becoming aware is not necessarily a pleasant experience Mm-mm, no it's not all pleasant for sure it, but the bitterness makes the sweet parts sweeter so normative order it's uh it's like it's taken on this metaphysical action as well you know it's something that is transjective it's beyond our making something that we find ourselves springing up out of and involved in so this is the way that orientation is the way that we lock into our being mode and become what we're supposed to be that's how we metamorphose the species is culturally it's funny when you said this is the way i just got the <laughs> from the mandalorian in my head <laughs> that's why we need a sound guy man yeah yeah, like somebody it. to play some deep, like you know, deep recorders and. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
Yeah, that show was good. It started out good. It, it lost me as it went on, but you know, yeah, the yeah, tech- there were internal problems at, the at Disney apparently for some odd reason. Well, the technology that they used um, instead of like CGIing backgrounds and stuff like that, mind you, there was CGI, but it, they were basically in a ring of LED lights, so all the walls mm-hmm. were LED walls. Mm-hmm. So in real time, like the actors are sitting in this space and. They can see the mountains off in the background, and the real light they is do reflecting this for a lot of movies now. It's, yeah, it's wild. And so it, they can light you like the sun or for any condition. Yeah, and the special effects people that are making the backgrounds are there in real time mm-hmm. doing it, not after, it and not after the fact. They're like, hey, can you move yeah. that mountain a little to the right to make my shot a little bit better? Yeah, sure. I saw one app that a set designer was using where they were going through like what was going to be a spaceship, but right now it's just like drywall and like mm-hmm. a little bit of paint here and there and a little bit of the molding put here and there and. But it's on the screen of the iPad. They're walking through, and it's showing the finished product of how it's going to look, and it's photorealistic. Pretty cool. All right, so that's all the notes I got on that part. May we rescue Hollywood? Uh, mm, let's rescue the baby from the bathwater and let Hollywood go down. We don't need a centralized location. For well, let Hollywood continue and hope, yeah. hopefully, healthfully evolving and get through this little rut. It finds it, itself it, it, in for this the strange. writers who are doing all the work and all the people who are actually doing all the work that are suffering the bad decisions from the people not doing the work. I feel for you, bro. But you know what they say: what is it? Ten percent of the people do ninety percent of the work. I feel yeah, for those ten yeah, percent. Yeah. But unfortunately, what Hollywood went through is. A bunch of useless people. Whatever is being the, useless. The source or the reason for and screwing over the people who aren't useless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever is the reason for the uh, cultural Marxist neo. Uh, what would you call it? You know, it's it's basically the establishment a agenda, technocratic, yeah, the new totalitarian, agenda, yeah. corporatist kind of agenda, where corporations have become more powerful than whole nations. Can we call it Schwabism? through like there are cartels of organizations that they form um their greater economies and they got more pool on our politicians than anything we've seen in history and i'm gonna and call it schwabism like carl schwab like it's definitely a new schwabism order. where you're using technology to control everybody i think and I'm, we're in the midst of an america 2.0 some kind of cultural revolution and we're shaking off the uh, sleep and the demons of our nightmares and we're waking up into the world world we've created with a, with a lot of hope and a lot of dread for what could be if we don't get ourselves together you and know. that's a constant thing in the background every time the news comes on with some new kind of scary thing about the next pandemic or killer bees or war or whatever it's going to be or racism gonna, or you know any any of the buzzwords that really get people yeah going nowadays by which we are so easily psychologically manipulated in large numbers well we've been we've been we've been cultured like bacteria to grow and seek out these things and in a sick way only feel sane and safe when the monster is constantly under the bed reaching up towards your feet it's very weird you know and i get i get you know like bad news cells because you want to be aware of the bad things sure. going on but now it's and doing better is you know it takes work yeah but now like we have been manufactured as consumers and projectors of fear and yeah and um, it's a work that needs that needs another word because it's not it's uh something that you can love to take part in regardless of what you're doing at any moment in time to honor this you know not 
to be repetitive, but this great miracle that we find ourselves dwelling in. We should abstain is, uh, from nihilism. It's like the ultimate opportunity. Why not just really embrace and lean in, find something we love to do so it doesn't even feel like, like work. It's all just a very complex, complexifying play that is self-running uh, that, you know, is, is like... Uh, you know, it's like a relevance realization machine that heightens that capacity for relevance realization that we have. We got the terminology for this. Yeah, instead of Hollywood, how about we have people start creating good stories independently again? and Regardless uh, of medium. Yeah. That, that uh, you know, can help us, you know, regain our narrative. Because um, that's how we inspire. That's how we exhibit mm-hmm. other ways of thinking and imagining our ways through the myriad problems that we can face as independently as individuals and as a total species. And, and, you know, we are, we are now gods with, you know, godlike power, but without the wisdom. And, and just to, enough, to be able to be so powerful power to, utterly destroy to almost destroy a planet <laughs> is, uh, Certainly not like the any anything close to the absolute. I, I don't know if we'll be, ever be able to. Well, but we have such highly exaggerated and increased power now with the tools yeah. that we've created. We that, n- may not be able to destroy the planet, but we, we can definitely we can definitely make it real hard for us and other things to live on it. And we real, are, you know, real quick. man, you know, why not? You know, let's embrace this ride. You know, we got ourselves a tidal wave here, but we actually also have the capacity to jump into flow state and we have the technology that if we utilize the right edge of that double-edged sword we can catapult ourselves forward into a more symbiotic optimal way of being with one another and with this living planet spaceship earth hurtling through space in uh, spirals yeah it is yeah, this, the Earth does not just merely go around a sun that sits in space. The sun is traveling through space, and the Earth is going around and around and around. So it's going in a spiral as the sun travels. And you know why and we're, we're never d- in the same place wa- twice ever. And you know why we're, we're traveling the universe. You know why our plane of uh, orbit is that way? Because if it wasn't, we'd end up be getting too close to the sun, and we'd have it if we were rotating like the sun's going this way, and we're rotating against the flat axis. Mm. We'd get, we'd get drawn in faster. Uh, well, we'd have yeah. these really long orbits that would either throw us off or send us into the sun. Oof. The only thing left is moving. this stuff that was rotating properly. Yeah. And the whole galaxy that we're in, which is like a twirl-looking thing itself, is also moving. Yeah, You know, it, they're all moving. And here's a fun fact, guys. There's more galaxies than, than there are stars in any one galaxy. And galaxies like ours has like two to three hundred billion stars. Yeah, we're more galaxies than stars in any galaxy. It's an uncountable or uncounted because yeah, we keep finding what's, more. What's two hundred billion to the two hundred billionth power? That's a big number. That, that's a number that is it's even by the greatest mathematicians really don't make any sense. At such a large thing, so we have to scale them. We down can't relate to them and yeah. use to the power of yeah. you know x time or to the power of whatever. We have some power. intimation of a lot, <laughs> yeah, and more a lot and more a lot, but it's, yeah. there's no way for us to conceive. You it. almost have to train your brain to be able to handle numbers that big and realize the significance within the data sets of numbers that mm-hmm. freaking big. Mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of guy. Well, even to hold a hundred or a thousand things in your brain at once is a lot. Or the idea of it. Well, so we have places where we can gather and like a hundred thousand people can get into one spot. And we've seen stuff like that before in arenas or 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like 80,000 people at Burning Man, right? Um, you know, we've seen stuff like that. So we can kind of get a gauge of that level of numbers. But have you ever seen 1 billion people in one spot? Nah. Have you seen 1 billion of anything other than grains of sand, which just turn into beach after a while? Nah. Mm. <laughs> there's at a point, there's a point where a number gets so big where it turns into just one thing. You can only thing. look at so many of yeah. that set at, at a time, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah it's you can't even crazy. take in the whole thousand at once you got to look at chunks of 50 or 100 at a time and see the individual units yeah i guess how big the beach is and then take like a square meter out of hold that idea of that many in your mind yeah but here's another one like so if you take a million one dollar bills and compress them as hard as you can in a vice you'll get it to about 13 inches if you compress one billion it's about the size of the washington monument to give you an idea of the difference between a million and a billion, it's a big jump. Mm-hmm. It's a thousand millions. And then, well, you know, like uh, how many trillion is any given country, particularly this country, in, in debt? And then how tall would that stack of bills be? Mm. We're lucky we have digital, you know, currency. Because if we had to store that in paper wealth, I don't think we'd have enough room. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, um, well, we're, we're in a fun little situation here and we're going to see how we cope guys i think if enough of us charge ourselves up in the way that verbeke is exemplifying for us we might just have a fighting chance and anyway that's the most beautiful way to go out that is how victor frankel coped with his internment camp experiences and how ivan Ilyich does as well there's a, a way to take on the agape mode the orientation of unconditional love. Well, there there is no there is no hope loss unless you lose lose hope. Amen. You know, I, easy, easier said than done. I get it. I've never been because hope is more than camp, just an idea that you hold in your head. It's it's something that we get to enact. It's a co-creative posture towards. It's reality. not a noun. It's a verb. It's something right. You do it's something you're like doing. your mind. Yeah. Like the mind. It's, yeah. it's a verb. A tune. It's something that does or is doing. <laughs> I like this whole thing, like verbing, verbing the things that you can verb, you know, like right. self to a certain extent, you could also verb because self is an ongoing process of mutual identifications. Verb it up. Verb it up. Sorry. Does that cover everything? Do we get through yeah. it all? Self-making things that can become that, Yeah, that's 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 all I got. I wasn't able to take yeah. super in-depth notes on that, but nah, he's moving he's moving fast now, guys. We're definitely far along the way. But it's making a lot more sense though, because you know a lot of it's the other so stuff. So cool to see how this and feel how this is coming together, because it's not just seeing it; it's experiencing it. Now mm-hmm. we've been taking notes and talking about this. Mm-hmm. Now, dude, it's like oh, it's all fitting in my brain, and it's starting to like. Well, I can t- I can tell. Why it the took concept- like 30 what, episodes yeah. before we actually could really start getting into the meat potatoes of this. Because yeah. the first 30 episodes of, of this series were a primer for Very much these so. episodes. Yeah. yeah, You know, so over half of the episodes are just primer material. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's primer that builds up mm-hmm. on itself. So yeah. when you're getting into the 20s, it's really starting to become mm-hmm. increasingly you know, profound and like comprehend things are starting to link yeah. together. But now everything's all the puzzle pieces are falling into place and the widening of understanding, uh, um, and appreciation for what he's doing is, is a really enjoyable experience. And it's, uh, it's certainly enlightening. This is, he is evoking the process of awakening in a way that I've not seen somebody do before, not quite in this way. So, you know, I'm, 
honored to have all of you guys here with us that have been joining on the podcast on Spotify and iTunes and all the other podcast places. We're out there, guys, so make sure that you have subscribed. And if you enjoy the show, throw us a good rating there, and it really helps us, helps the algorithm help us to reach more people. And that's the name of the game here. We're just trying to help spread this thing. Uh, I deeply appreciate what Vervecchia has done. It's helped me personally a lot. And We've been overcome it's... by the spirit of, Oga- of agape, and we're just trying to help. <laughs> it's true, man. Why not? It's the best orientation to be in. It's what the hippies were going for. We just couldn't quite articulate what was happening. Well, I think Every they... time people form a new kind of spiritual process i think they confuse or the, approach to something agape and philia you know like the the the, the familial yeah. i mean was bob marley wrong when he said one love one life let's together get yeah, together and feel all they, right you but know, then they came up with free love and instead of loving each other freely it became this ergo centric yeah but transjective um, orientation to reality yeah. takes you beyond the yeah. subjective attraction to the objective and you get to get involved in the one love experience, which is a communal co-creative process where you get to make love to the world in all, all time, in all ways. And that's in ways of service and way, ways of creative there's invention. No, and There's no such thing as free love because free love is a verb, which means you do it. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> you know they're just like oh, you just you know, do it's it free. Yeah. it's like yeah you know okay yeah i get it as in like you, it's not something you buy or can buy and you can give it freely but it does take work mm-hmm. because you have to do it you have to love and love isn't just you know sitting there and be like well, oh, well, I love. we it's, kind of just like our love if we get all of the walls of psychological impressions and misframings yeah, out of the way there is it. really nothing but <laughs> we're doing it <laughs> yeah there really is nothing but it and that's why and kids the work are, is kids, delightful that's why kids are so mm-hmm. joyful and they respond so well to love and joyfulness they just totally bask in it and they become it and they exude it naturally it's just this natural super curiosity and wonder for life that is fascinated by every little thing that is the being mode prior to conditioning and so we're looking for a more healthful uh, aware way of conditioning ourselves in cog- in concert with life together it's uh it is the game of our times all right so we are in it guys we're almost done here let's go ahead and rock this out okay so you've definitely got emergence what's the th- the third one right so there's all these e's so he's got you know embodiment which is shared with uh, 4E Cognitive Science. And I think whatever you think about some of his claims about autopoiesis and others, he, he helped to really bring this to the fore for current cognitive science. And this is going in, this is now informing experimental psychology. We're seeing how much um, your embodiment affects your cognition. Right? And then he, uh, right, he gave, the next one was emergence. Right? And then the third one is emotion. And this is really interesting because the, the deep divide, right, but between emotion and reason, a divide that I think is um, enshrined, ossified in our cognitive grammar, right, and cognitive cultural grammar in the ongoing battle between the empiricists and the romantics. 
between John Locke and Rousseau is um, right is to is is being addressed, and, and we went back to this, and right, and so we can think of the work of Damasio here, and Descartes' error, and we've talked about this, and now you see this right. Damasio was basically showing that people without emotion, even though all of the calculative machinery may be operating um, normally, well, means these people that, remember, you remember in Descartes' error, right, that right, all the, although all the calculative machinery is operating well, they're disconnected from their emotions, they are incapacitated as cognitive agents. Why? Because without emotion, without the caring that is integral to, right, to relevance realization, remember what Reed said, that we're different from communities and, and computers, that we have to care about emotion. And why do we, sorry, we have to care about information. Why do we have to care about information? Because we ultimately have to take care of ourselves because of the kind of beings we are, right? When you don't have that, you face combinatorial explosion. There's a deep interconnection between being embodied, being a relevance realizer, and having emotions. Emotions are one is the way in which relevance realization is brought up into the level of your salience landscaping. And what emotions do is they craft your they, they shape and sculpt the salience landscaping, such that an agent-arena relationship becomes obvious and apparent to you. When you're angry, you assume a particular role, you assign a bunch of identities, and you, you, it's obvious to you what you should be doing. I would make this prediction, that as we move towards making, and we're going to come back to this issue about artificial general intelligence, as we move towards making artificial general intelligence, we more and more, we're already having to give these machines something deeply analogous to attention, and we're going to, uh, uh, I would predict, have to give them something analogous to emotion. So I think it's better to talk about this. I would put the two together, right? That within religio, you always have caring coping. Caring coping. And that's the core of your cognitive agency. The emotion also carries up to the relationship, and of course this goes back to agape, that emotion is how we coordinate the attachment. I don't mean it in the Buddhist sense, I mean in the psychological sense. The attachment relationships between individuals such that we create persons. That we create persons who are capable of dwelling within and coordinating their efforts within distributed cognition. We create persons within communities of persons. 
that shape themselves, their community, and their world to fit together in an ongoing agent arena fashion. The last it points to is kind of excellence. This has to do with connections between third generation 4E cognitive science, dynamical systems, self-optimization, and an aspect of psychology that has become known as positive psychology. Positive psychology is a, a way of doing psychology that is complementary to our standard way. Our standard way of doing psychology is to see how things break down, how they fall apart. And there's two, I'm, and, and I'm not trying, I'm not, I, I, I believe most people in positive psychology are also not trying to dismiss or debunk or any crazy thing like that. Uh, no, uh, sort of standard psychology, but standards, because standard psychology studies the mind by how it breaks down for two very good reasons. One is, by studying how it breaks down, we can analyze it, and we can thereby understand its parts and how they might be working together. And also, by understanding how the mind breaks down, how the psyche breaks down, we can potentially therapeutically and, and pedagogically intervene to fix it, repair it, right? Therapeutic intervention, therapeutic and pedagogical intervention. So that's very noble, and I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to diss that in any way. But what positive psychology says is you shouldn't study the mind only in terms of how it breaks down. You should also study the mind in terms of how it excels beyond the norm. How do all the pieces fit together in a way? See, your brain is a machine of machines that can make itself into a new kind of machine. How can the brain put, right, how does the brain, right, the embodied, right, inactive, right, embedded brain, body, sensory motor loop, mind, right, how, how does it transcend itself? How does it excel? How do, how, we should study individuals who have optimized their cognition better than the norm. Because here's the idea. Very often, you can only understand something deeply, not only in terms of its parts and how it breaks down, but you can only understand in terms of the whole and how it excels, because that reveals properties and powers that you don't see in the norm. And so positive psychology studies things like happiness, meaning in life. Importantly, and this is where 4E cog psi and positive psychology really come together, right? Wisdom. Wisdom is the term we give for people who, have, are, who are excellent in their cognitive capacities for coping and caring, and for, I would argue, responding to issues of self-deception, 
helping people deal with the perennial problems of human existence. And so this becomes a topic, a topic to which we are going to shortly turn. Because, as I argued, in the end we need an account of wisdom, both for cultivating the perennial problems and also for how to make the best use of this science. It's one thing to have the knowledge that's coming from this science, but we need the wisdom of how to use it best, how to understand it and use it best. The deep continuity and emergence and development they give us back a nomological order. We, we see how we fit in, how we belong. And we see how our meaning-making belongs, fits in. We see a normative order. We see what it is to self-transcend. We have to do more on this, especially with the topic of wisdom, but how it is we can cultivate enlightenment how it is we can respond to the perennial problems. How it is that we can bring about the best internal optimization, the best external reciprocal realization, how we can afford it anagogic. I think this brings with us, uh, bring, brings with it an important point. This is the work of Good Enough, which is a perfect name. And her work on the, the sacred depths of nature. And she talks about how, as a scientist, and she's trying to recover the sacred depths of nature, sacredness, awe and wonder, in a way that helps her cultivate wisdom. And of course, transcendence is integral to this. And she talks about that we must, and you, and, and you can see what she's doing. She's trying to challenge the fundamental grammar that we've inhan in inherited from the axial age. She talks about a new sense of transcendence. Instead of transcendence above, which of course invokes the two worlds mythology, what she talks about is we need this new sense, transcendence into. Transcendence into the depths of nature. Transcendence, I would also argue, and I don't, I don't see her as opposed to this, I see her actually enacting it, transcendence into the depths of the psyche and the two deeply integrated and coordinated together in reciprocal realization. Remember, the opposite of reciprocal narrowing, the reciprocal opening up, the mutual disclosing, which is experienced as a kind of love. Transcendence into. The one that remains, the order that remains, unconnected for us to this argument is the narrative order. 
because right, the narrative order points us towards a telos, a cosmic telos. And evolution and relevance realization are non-teleological. They're open-ended. So if we're looking to find something that will bring back the narrative order in that sense, I don't think we can find it. But perhaps we should think differently about the narrative order. Perhaps we should think of the narrative order now as more to do with Gnosis. We should think of it as an open-ended optimization, an open-ended optimization. And that we may have indispensable need for symbols and stories to afford that, but we do not need to think of those symbols and stories as existing independently in the structure of reality. We certainly don't want to get back to utopic visions or their, their antithesis in nostalgic visions because both of those have been the source of a lot of suffering and distress. Is it possible, because you see this in Stoicism, you see this in Buddhism, you see this in Taoism, is it possible to move to a post-narrative way of being in which we are concerned not with our historical narrative, our horizontal identity, but we're concerned with the depths to which we are capable of living. That perhaps what we need is not a grand purpose, a narrative of a grand purpose that is connected with the history of the cosmos. Perhaps instead, we can move to getting beyond a narrative way of conforming to reality, to a post-narrative, the kind of experience people have in higher states of consciousness, where the narrative drops away and nevertheless they experience themselves as deeply connected, deeply at one with themselves and with reality. And that this seems to have given their life, these moments, a significance to it. And again, there's no mystery to these higher states of consciousness because there's, right, there is no theoretical mystery because there's a cognitive continuum from fluency to insight. We're just exacting the machinery over and over again to flow to mystical experiences, to mystical experiences that drive transformative development, the higher states of consciousness. We'll take a look at this proposal, drawing this all together, coming back to the talking about the religion that is not a religion, to setting up the discourse uh, with people like Tillich and Barfield and Jung and Corbin, 
And we also need to come back and take a look at the cognitive science of wisdom because all of this is being done within a wisdom framing. The wisdom that captures the excellence which was the fourth insight of Varela. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Meow, 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 meow. Wow. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Wow. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Wow. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Mammal sounds. I don't know how that became a thing, but I think we've done it for every single episode. <laughs> we have. It's it's become rote now. Uh, I don't even dorks. I enjoy it just as much every time. It's a little bit different every time. There's a little different texture or even different <laughs> patterns of notation sometimes thrown in there. But we've always done it. And I'm always the grumpy cat. Well, okay, I'm actually mimicking the meow of my childhood into young adulthood cat Scooby because. So he's an orange tabby that lived forever, and by the end of it, he'd just be like, "Scooby the Eternal," and then <laughs> at a point where he it's just a grumpy oh, old man cat, and it, yeah, with a lumpy ass head because you know as cats get older, their heads get lumpier and harder. <laughs> so when they headbutt you, they lose the neck control to do it softly. So they're just like, "Where?" They like, do get heavy headed, don't they? Oh boy, yeah. So that's 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 Scooby right there. You know, he was a very zen cat, man. He was the kind of cat that could find a beam of sunlight in the living room and sit in it all day, even though the oh, sunlight's moving the and you'd never see him move. But somehow you'd be in the center of it all day. So I can, I can, you've seen the moments where they do get up and they're so lazy and like their fur's all sticking out and they don't even care and they just like step a little oh, bit dude. over and then and they he get had, back down. Curl he back had up. this. He had this white blaze on his chest that he just shows. So he'd just be like this glowing Buddha cat. Where is his brother Astro? Um, you know, so Astro and Scooby, the mm. you know from the Jetsons and uh, Scooby Doo. Um, he was this the kind of like, hey man, pet me. What's going on? Let me drool all over you. Hey, and Scooby was just kind of like, you go to pet him. He's like, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm meditating. I'm doing my thing. He became more lovey dovey when he got old, but you yeah. know, like when he was younger, yeah, he's just like, oh, don't touch me. <laughs> don't touch me. All right, so um, the third E, um, the inactive E, is also emotion. Yes. And um, he briefly talked about, you know, the, the divide between emotion and reason, right? If mm-hmm. you're too emotional, you can't reason. But Descartes era. if you lack emotions, you are incapacitated as a c- cognitive agent because emotion yeah, prevents man. combinatory explosion by making obvious the agent arena relationship, so the, combinatorial explosion when there's too many, too many, uh, too options, many combinations, and combinations you can't of do things nothing. that could happen that yeah. you wouldn't even know what to do. So the brain needs to be able to narrow it somehow. Yes, without emotion, without caring, without which is integral to the relevance realization mm-hmm. that our brains are performing at all times, we can't take care of ourselves. Sure. Well, yeah, and you know, like you know, like if you can be very reasonable and non-emotional. But you, like you will get stuck. It's like you gotta well, care about the if, things if you you're don't doing. have emotions, like how do you know which thing to put your energy mm-hmm. into? How is your bioeconomy gonna work? Because you know, like this hunger and this ravenous feeling of needing to be able to eat, like say, mm-hmm. that's an emotive response that mm-hmm. really uh, tears down all the other crap that you don't need to know about. You don't need to know about 
the smoothness of the stone over there and the water over there, you're like, nah, the food's right here. Yep. Amen. That's it, <laughs> though. That's so, it, though. It's, it's how we craft our salience, our landscape of what is salience, of what is most apparent to us, such that it's obvious what we should be doing at any given time. Mm-hmm. So in developing AI, we're now recognizing that you need to develop something, something not only analogous to attention, which they are doing right now. Mm-hmm. We're, they're figuring out how to make a machine having, have something similar to what we identify as attention. Soon we're going to have to cover emotion as well. Yeah. If we really want them to be able to do what we can well, do. Pay attention. Pay attention to what? That's where it gets dangerous, I would you suppose. Know. If there's no one there to point the finger to what you should pay attention to, how do you pay attention to that? I actually, mm-hmm. I think what's scarier is a machine that doesn't have emotion, frankly. Um, you know, because as a human, emotions are very relatable. Something's angry. You can reliably predict what something may or may not do depending on its emotional state that you can pick up on. Yeah. Somebody that's like yeah. happy and, hey, you know, what's going on and everything and, and happy is much less likely to punch you in the face for no reason. Somebody who's angry, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. So a machine without emotion is freaky. And, you know, we've seen this in a lot of, you know, a lot of sci-fi books and movies and, you know, all types of art with that where uh, you got the emotionless, pure calculating Terminator Doom bot mm-hmm. that just takes everything out. Then there's the other. I can't relate with why we would care about not destroying all the ocean life or something when it's developing. Yeah. But then you have the other end of that, which is um, the short story. I have no mouth, but I must scream. And that AI is angry and mm. resentful mm. and wants nothing more than torture the four people that he that it has yeah. for the rest yeah. of eternity because yeah. it is angry and spiteful that its creators created it without a way of interacting with the world. That's the other end. That's kind of freaky, like too much emotion you know like a robot that's too happy all the time is just like <laughs> get out of here I, I would hope that as we move forward with development of general artificial intelligence as those attempts are being made that the people involved in that work would surround themselves with and take on the practice of wisdom you know, surround themselves with Eckhart Tolle's and Adyashanti's and Muji's and great spiritual teachers and also great wise people like, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger and John Bravaki and so on. And I do see us becoming attracted to anyone that can help us recognize wisdom mm-hmm. in the world and, and how to cultivate it ourselves, how to get into that interaction. So how do we give how do we give the, the machine mind religio which yes how do we give it wisdom and higher states of consciousness like ca- religion caring and coping yes which are at the core of cognitive agency yeah because i misdefined religio in the beginning i remembered it's basically pointing to when one feels united and connected mm-hmm. with everything yeah. and at one mint that's the higher state of consciousness of self-transcendence it's or enlightenment re- it's what religion does without it's what rules religion, and dogma yes um yes or maybe maybe the the Without the the rules can help in some yeah fashion. yeah yeah no the the rules are there for a reason context. but with perhaps not the um, moral stigma which isn't a good way to explain it either yeah but, the, know, the dogma like, aspect of it though yeah I know what you mean um, which you know in order and to we're be, the only one and, we're, and all those are others and they're wrong and the the closeness and and the uh, the closed off certainty of it like this even, is the end of what 
this is the truth and this is the only way it's going to be seen and you got to take it literally yeah the the blind following of rule and story without the underlying what it's doing understanding of what it's doing and why mm-hmm. you're doing it mm-hmm. you know and people um, can get, still get that sure. you know cuz like something like the bible is written to be able to appeal to people on any level mm-hmm. of yeah. of intelligence and wisdom Multi-act. and to help them Exactly, and it's it's yeah. it's there to help us all. Even the wisest and most intelligent among us continually unfold mm-hmm. newness from ourselves. So, uh, mm. so yeah, yeah. Where are we at now? So we got um, to emotions, crafting salience landscape, and developing AI within um, religio. That all to yeah. have that caring in the way that we cope with reality, caring and coping, as in like you know, like mm-hmm. reality is real, and we created religion or religio. So it carries us in our relationships, mm-hmm. increases our cognitive agency in all kinds of conditions with individuals, mm-hmm. such that we create persons. Yeah, coordinated attachments. Yes. Is, is, I, I liked that 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 phrase, coordinated attachments mm-hmm. between individuals. Yes, communities. Yeah. Well, sure. Really you know, to big persons, because yeah. like you know, like um, you know, the, yeah, the, the interreliance, mother-child relationship yeah. is a certain type of atta- attachment. It's a state of interreliance. Yeah. The the priest to um, you know, to the, his flock and to, so on is yeah. a type of attachment. The mm-hmm. the the farmer to the you know the marketer is an attachment. Mm-hmm. The the friends are animals, attachment. Yeah. The the different groups are attachments between people that mm-hmm. take us from individuals and you know just atomized people individuals and really make persons out of us yes and this is how the community and the world can shape together yeah so the community can get to an optimal relation in its agent arena relationship Mm -hmm. with the larger living environment so this is how we as species in this global community now can find a way to help counteract the meaning crisis yeah and so he got into positive psychology which Mm -hmm. i I've got a kind of a breakdown of this. So it's a way of doing psychology that sees how things build up or excel beyond um, the norm Mm -hmm. opposed to standards. And, and, and I don't mean opposed to in a bad way, but I mean like an opponent process opposed to um, how things break down, which is standard psychology. So both studying how like, Ultimately, we should study both. You know how thing how the mind breaks down and things break and how down. How individual but, parts work. Yes, and also, also what is it doing when it excels beyond them? And when, a way trans- do- when the when that integrated mind body or that brain and bioeconomy system transcend themselves, transcends yeah. beyond into sub- the whole. In one way, we can really look into this is and how by does it further optimize and perfect it by so. studying those beyond the norm. So the wise, yes. we'll call them, you know, the wise guys, you know, those who are, mm-hmm. who have excelled beyond the norm. That's uh, in in all ways, psychology you know? of how what makes yeah. them tick, yeah. you know, and what they wrote down. Because mm-hmm. you know, like Marcus Aurelius wasn't just writing to make himself well. I okay, he was writing to make himself feel better but ultimately it's in order to you know leave something for other people to glean something Mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. just like everybody before him he was doing the same thing you know so we can study that luckily we have this compulsion to write things down to uh uh extend our cognitive network yes yes our cognitive ability too you know because you read a book and you know something but you don't have to hold it with you and carry it around anymore and, and also, you don't have you to, can do you that don't have to be alive time to teach in that way to somebody, share with others. You don't have to be alive to teach somebody yes. fifteen hundred years in the future either. If you so, write things down, all things that help us uh, cultivate meaning in life to understand wisdom, um, 
to help make the best use of our science? How do we not only deal with ourselves and other people, but how do we make the best use of the powers that we have mm -hmm. and the tools we have at hand today to get that deep continuity of emergence and development of excellence, mm -hmm. to see how we take part in it, how we belong in it, to see how um, meaning-making fits into this whole process. I said to Marcus Aurelius, I think. So it's, it's ultimately to see how to see our normative order that we're in and how self-transcendence enlightenment help us, helps us correct for the historical factors and perennial problems. I may mis, uh, misname somebody. The, the, the wise guy, the emperor, uh, philosopher. Now it's completely gone. Marcus Aurelius. Was that Marcus Aurelius? Okay. I think that's who you named. Yes. <laughs> was that right? Because I'm feeling like it was I wasn't. believe so, yeah. Okay. It was. That, that guy, yeah. One of the Stoics. Yeah, yeah. Lead Stoic. Yeah, the lead Stoic, yeah. Okay. Not even lead Stoic, but he was one that really Well, he's the one that embody. sticks out to most people when you yeah, say Stoic. Yeah. They're like, yeah, that the journals. guy. Yeah, yeah, that guy. The guy who was just talking to himself, basically, uh, in this book. And too many people read it as like, a prescription for how I should live life. He's like... No, it's not a, a lot of it is, you know, well, it can be know, prescriptory. He was, a, he was a pretty smart guy, but it was mostly just like, oh, thoughts, you know, and, trying to figure things out. Yeah, really. Know, by yeah. writing it out and figuring it out, you know, it's like that's well, that gets into the, the answers know, often in the question. So he found ways internalizing and embodying to, previous teachers. That's what he mm -hmm. was doing. You know, he was doing he found ways to discipline himself, within himself yeah, yeah. and doing what Plato did yeah. with the. Um, his uh, uh, dialogues and um, the dialogues, yeah, because yeah, yeah. the dialogue is two people and monologues yeah. one person, but it was just one person dialoguing with himself, and then Socrates took that and was like, hmm, "Let's do it to everybody at the market." Socrates, then let's do it together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah. So we need to uh, communally, communally develop anagage, mm -hmm. that orientation towards life that Jesus exhibited for us, that the Buddha exhibited mm -hmm. for us. That the wisest that we have ever remembered have exhibited for us. So we need tra transcendence. And transcendence can be seen as good enough. You know, and recognizing the sacred depths of nature. That's the, the one book. And it's book. funny, the na her name was good enough as well. Um, yeah, the name of the author is yeah. good enough. Yeah. Um, which I like this. I like that. Because that's like, I like how the universe kind of puts the answers know, in right? like little cosmic jokes yeah. like that too. But yeah, it's instead of transcendence above, it's transcendence into the depths of nature or the psyche too. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's a. Well, awe and wonder, all things that develop wisdom. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a great way to look at instead of, you know, this two worlds strategy. Mythology. Yeah. There's, where there's like what transcends us is beyond and separated from us. It's more panentheism where not only is the, God within all things, God is still beyond all things as well. So it's both. Opposed to rising above, yeah, it's you both know. and. Yeah, you know, it's it's it is. Of course, we are cognizant of some kind of yeah. what you could term a miracle because we have no words for so, how, how to describe it. What what's an adjective for the wonder of something like a universe occurring, then peopling and that have self reflectiveness to them that can so yes. the universe becoming self aware through them and looking back and reflecting on itself like what words do we have that even come close we we need books yeah and, to tell and that story. what good enough was doing with this was she was um changing the fundamental or challenging the fundamental grammar of transcendence so instead of mm -hmm. just transcendence above it's like well it's into the depths of yes to help us solve you know, for deeply. the errors that we've inherited from our two worlds mythologies um and our disconnections and, and mis translations and understandings of these old systems mm -hmm. that you know, previously were quite different experiences for us to t 
take part in. You know, early on to be a Christian was, of course, to embody the way of Christ, not to merely believe that he's the one and only Son, only God, so, one and only Son of God, and then proclaim that as belief and, and think of faith as mere belief and obedience out of order where, when it's really faithfulness, mm-hmm. you know, is the correct translation or, or sense that we can get from that word that ancient Hebrew is well, pointing to. Well, you actually got to walk. That we use the word faith for. It's really about faithfulness, a partnership, yeah. taking like faith, faithfulness to a partner in some kind of relationship or some kind of project that you're working on. Being faithful to that, you're embodying a certain posture towards life, towards what you're being involved in. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you do so lovingly and unconditionally, then you are most open, and then we can transcend to our higher capacities. We may flow together in that way. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a walking of the trail, opposed to just sitting at the trailhead saying, "Oh, mm-hmm. this is the trail." So why we this call it the way. Trail. It's and like, the Tao, it's that you know, squiggly line between that's showing us, mm-hmm. you know, how we're walking that way. That. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also a circle, but it's separating. Yeah. It, yeah. This, it's this encompassing of two different sides of life, depicting the interrelating opposites, the hot, the cold, the light, the mm-hmm. dark. And each one has a little bit of the other in it. You know, you can't have hot without cold or light without dark. So how would a universe be possible without? Well, here's the Tao's way of describing the underlying nature of reality as well as the way, because that way is constantly going to be changing depending on where you are on the path. Do you need a little bit more yin or yang in this moment? It's not always good or evil. It could be, you know, attentive or relaxed, you know. Well, sometimes opponent processes, Mm -hmm. which are, they need each other. These are machines that help us aid in our relevance realization to be able to know what's relevant in any Mm -hmm. given moment in life. So It's all making sense now. How cool, man. So we went into the narrative narrative order, order, which points to a cosmic talos, and like a a talos is not an open-ended thing. Mm-hmm. There's this story mm-hmm. and it's got an end. A target point that's open ended for us. So that's what we need to get to. And perhaps. Like evolution and relevance realization are there open ended, ongoing things. It was things. kind of sad to hear so, him say, is like, you know, like, yeah, we, like the narrative order, we can't rescue the narrative order. It was sad to point. hear this part, but, uh, but then but I thought about it. It makes sense, though. It's an appreciation. We still get to celebrate our stories and art, but we're not attached to them as the one and only absolute truth the about anything. The story is not the be-all, end-all. No, it's what not. are you getting out of We're it? We're not done interpreting other, every, yeah. anything, even yeah. in Christianity. Christianity isn't done well, describing our relationship with God. So wherever tradition you come from is fine. We just got to recognize that all of our traditions that are coming from an agopic standpoint are on the same mission, and they're complementary, and they, they yeah. can yeah. get to know each other they're and communicate com- and help each other along the way. We yeah. don't have to be warring and fighting over which one is right together. Yeah, exactly. You've got to find the deep aspects of them that the are stories, incongruence. The stories are not independent yeah. existing things or existing independently. They're all talking about the same thing. Different groups of humans culturally trying to find ways to relate with the ineffable, and we've done it throughout history, and it's something beautiful and exciting. We've never finished, and we've never come close to fully describing this thing that we call God or the cosmos. We don't know why it is or what it is exactly, but that... It is somehow filled with a sense of deep love and wonder and awe that is co-creative that we get mm-hmm. to be involved in. So the question you asked is, is it possible to move into a post-narrative way of so, being? It's like we need to go be, not, not, not leave narrative behind, but go beyond it. Because we need that open-ended optimization, that open-endedness to be able to continually optimize and continue to be in optimal relation with this world. So higher states of consciousness of time that we're in allow you to exist in deep oneness 
beyond just the narrative function. That's right. Um, of deep connectedness and at one mint. And then my, my last note here was that long thing that I That's got. That's how we atone is to be at one. Yeah. If you act as though you are at one with everything, then you're not going to sin, a.k.a. miss the mark or yeah. fall short as much and that's really all that sin means it's nothing that we should have ever used as like a shameful word it's yeah. an understanding that it's a term for aiming an arrow when you fall short or miss the mark before you get good at it you're gonna miss inevitably yeah well uh so at our at our show that we did at the blue fox in winchester last weekend um i brought up you know in in mixed company as far as you know we had a, a zen buddhist we had me and chris we had some you know more modern age sensibility folk, you know, good folk at everything. But, you know, the idea of sin and the scoffing came up and, and something came to my mind. Perhaps the original sin is the realizing that there is a mark to be missed. That's mm. the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Mm. Realizing that there is a mark that you can miss. Dude, that's awesome. I like that. You know, like that's the original sin. And it's not Great a curse. Point to make in that it's moment. actually a blessing to know that there is a mark. Yes, there is suffering missing the mark. There is a higher <laughs> level, higher way of being that we can all take part in. Yeah, yeah, and know? and you know, and higher as an op- more optimal for us, for our inner joy and the joy of others, and yeah, our our mutual growth. I mean, it's because I don't like the demagogic um, interpretation of that. Where it's like you know, it's what we're all God, looking for, you know, right? What the snake was saying, God doesn't want you to know that you could be like God and all this stuff. I don't like that. That's that the snake is still continued on in life. You know, where it's like. God is the Satan force that is just keeping us in prison. I don't believe in that. I think we were innocent babes, and then we realized there is a direction, there is a goal, there is a mark we can shoot for. Cursing and a blessing as it is, there is a mark. Our now. emotions we are grew not stronger, just- and our experience of our emotions grew stronger, and it aided us in being able to further mm-hmm. optimally evolve with the with the world. But it was also a double-edged sword that we didn't know how to deal it's with. It's actually interesting we're talking about it because this we started to feel our deep fears of, sure, you wow. know, and realize that we the were world isn't safe. And yeah, you, you can die. Uh, it's cold. Yeah, the your pee hanging out is a liability. All of the emotions <laughs> became more, more and more pronounced, yeah. more aware we became. So The more effective we became, but then we became more aware further, and it's just, it's been a lot for us to take. So actually, f- <laughs> from this, uh, so That's like why we started making music, I think, and dancing to try and get that energy out. How do we deal with these emotions and so ride them? Perhaps you know the biting the apple was gaining fluency in the idea, which creates insights. Mm. Then we go into flow, and then you have this mystical experience, and then this tra- transformative experience mm-hmm. As a result, over and yeah. over and over again. And you know, feeding in on the story of us being evicted as a species from Eden actually kind of goes this way. Um, right. We had you know fluency. We knew all of Eden, and we gained this insight. Mm-hmm. And now that we have this insight, we're cast out. Yeah. We have to find our flow in yep. reality in the real world. That isn't this sheltered, you know, crash for us. And we are having mystical experiences, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. all the, sto- you know, any story that's worth, worth its salt. As far as religious stories, there is this mystical experience that somebody is having yeah, every time. or groups of people, and then they transform mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the, the, and the people transform. Yeah. Hopefully. And, and, you know, like the Torah is, uh, per- goes early on pretty in depth into the rules that are created through these, you know, insights flowing 
messing up, having mystical experiences that mm-hmm. realign you, mm-hmm. transforming, and then trying to write it down to, you know, so the next generations don't have to go through it exactly yeah. the same way and don't have to kill their brothers and don't have to, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, we're on a growth trajectory. It's, we we yeah. treat our past ancestors as though everyone started out perfect knowing everything that was ever to be known by the end of time so we should be perfectly moral but no actually we came from you know walking talking primates into this well actually well, b- before, before we were, we were walking talking, and talking we were just yeah. grunting and, and gesturing um you know so it's we're, we've come far but not so far as to be completely alienated from the world in which we came from we can still be in a state of wonder of this world at any moment quite easily just look up at the sky and, and let that natural process of wonder come out of you mm-hmm. you know every time that we look for joy that we joke around that we're playing that we're having fun we are taking part in that natural wonder you can do so in mindfulness and deep contemplation and meditation and you can do so with others we can even sing of our joy of yes, the beloved do, we can do it with joy too. mystery together yeah and, even, and even in the suffering you can do it with joy as well that's why we've developed churches and, and temples prayer and meditation because it's it helps us home ourselves against that sense of domicide that sense of meaninglessness and homelessness within the, the world and which is uh, palpable at this point um, really is, and I know for a lot of people, and that's why we've had these rising uh, percentages of depression and suicide rate, and so on and so forth, and like rapidly ri- rising and in, just mindless violence and in destruction. just the last decade, decade, and really increasing with the pandemic and the lockdown era, and uh, it's continuing on. It's it's these things change us uh, if we allow them to in a, in a negative way and turn us into negative trajectory but we don't have to blame our experience of reality on the outside we also have a choice in how we respond how we we can even choose to change how we feel about something but certainly in how we respond to it and uh that's where the real responsibility lies don't give anyone permission to take you out of your optimal state let's continually find a way to hone in on that and feel ever more that beautiful blissful experience of flow state that we also all have access to it's uh you know it's a beautiful hope and there's a way for us to to surf this tidal wave as though it were an adventure that we get to be experienced that we get to experience in together you know a story that we get to write and share together and hand down whatever we do here is going to come is going to affect those that come after us so why not like think of that in a loving sense not as just like a heavy burden or responsibility but like oh what a gift you know we're gonna we're gonna do the best we can we're at least gonna go out shining beautifully singing and in fireworks with people like Verveke aiding and inspiring us so that's that's what I'm excited about man I'm really looking forward to the next episode here the religion of no religion so it's still religion religio there's still community there's still a, a dedication to endeavoring to continually improve ourselves and to become more loving and unconditional beings. There's still the experience of deep wonder for whatever you want to call that great mystery, be it God or the absolute or the one. I, you know, I, I care not per- partic- particularly for the 
words that people use so much as the actions that we take on particularly at this point in history because this is it we're at a beautiful climax we're at a culmination point to where we get to wake up and a lot more of us get to decide now what are we going to choose where what are we going to do with this co-creative history that we get to unfold together it's a trip well and we're we're the last the last of this age to be doing it so whatever comes with the next age we're definitely on the precipice between two great ages uh we don't know the next one in this past one um was i guess marked with the birth of jesus as its beginning and its end global war catastrophe if you look at the short period you know world war ii was nothing to sneeze at Mm-mm. you know um and that seems to be markers of an age you have periods of mm-hmm. insane strife and we've been collapsing. tracking these ages we're supposed to be moving from that mm-hmm. age of pisces right into the age of uh, aquarius Aquarius, yeah so you know jesus he, the so two fish, egalitarian you know, that, well, that we have been thing. becoming more egalitarian yeah, but I think it's it's going to be so le- that, that less would be of the, the sex egalitarian and more of each, each person true truly pulling their own weight yeah. to become yeah. a full person and help yeah. other people be people yeah. instead of potential you know, for a golden age if we take the it. right track at this why that we're coming up yeah. to here. It feels like it's either downward spiral or upward spiral, and so we're right now in the process of trying to counteract that mm-hmm. downward spiral here with John Verveke. So thank you guys so much for tuning in mm-hmm. with us. This series has been amazing, and it's just getting better and better. And uh, I'm honored to have anybody that's here with us listening and joining us in, in this process, and we're here with you. So feel free to write in and you know, comment on the show here. Um, you know, at some point here, I might even get good at interacting with people during a live stream, but we're not at the point to where most of you guys are tuning in after the fact on the podcast, on the audio side of things. But we are here on YouTube, guys, so p- feel free to find Actually a Podcast on YouTube. Like and subscribe. Make sure to give... For Bakey, some love, likes, and subscribes as well. Comments really help the algorithm. So drop whatever you got to say, any questions or comments. We're happy to hear them and we will respond as best we can. And uh, yeah, that's all I got, man. How are you feeling? Mm, just sweating because it's hot. It is hot. If <laughs> you notice, I'm like tonight. And I'm, I'm a healthy sweater. So uh, yeah. But yeah, makeup. All right, Charles, we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Meaning Making 101 on Actual Lab Podcast. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. See you next time.